welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts, and joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how are these end of the year pre-Xmas times treating you? Very busy. I have a lot of work to do, because as anyone who has worked in video or media or any any kind of feeding an audience content kind of job, you have to feed them over the Christmas holidays. So yeah. we have to pull ahead, and we are a team that is never ahead. <laughs> that is yeah. not my superpower, getting ahead. <laughs> no one's ever ahead in media, though. They're always behind. That's the thing. And it's always just like a long slog. And, oh, I'll log on on the 27th of December and just make sure this thing goes live. That's oh. basically the life of media people this time of year, you know? Yeah, it's really grim. I've had some seriously traumatic content-producing times for previous Christmases, this year, I think, like, I don't want to jinx it by saying I think it might might go okay, but, like, maybe, mm. maybe it'll be all right. Yeah, okay, good. Well, I've got my fingers crossed for you, and you don't have to Thank worry you. about this podcast over the Christmas break, because obviously we are away. In fact, as people are listening to this, we put Patreon pledges on hold as we are uh, yeah. taking a little pause, so that's interesting. Um, resumes again in January. I'm already missing my sweet, sweet green. <laughs> <laughs> yep uh, oh dear yeah so someone said to me oh why don't you set up a ko-fi account and i was like it's fine we'll just take a month off it's, oh, it's okay uh, yeah it's honestly yeah. it's fine yeah it's fine <laughs> we'll we'll be okay um yeah it's sort of like it might be different if this was our only job but it's not our only job so i think we'll um we're okay we put a lot of work into it and i think it's you know definitely sort of like worth supporting obviously if people want to but yeah it's uh, above, above off is fine but yes sounding nervous there pal yeah I, yeah i don't know I, I just i'm backing myself into a corner so what you're not meant to do as a pr you know is like not is to just avoid the difficult uh, topics and move on uh so yes um a break i will also be flying to japan when people are listening to this matthew so that's oh. uh, the start of my 14 day trip so uh, to Tokyo. So I like uh, to imagine yeah. a little blocky polygon figure of you walking across a global world map, a la the world map of Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> You're going to yep. get in a little biplane and go along only the light bits of water, not the dark bits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, what a great transition into this week's, uh, this week's subject. So yes, Matthew has been playing disc one of Final Fantasy VII, as evidenced by the fact that he thinks you crossed the world map in a little plane and not an airship, which is what you actually do. No. In, uh, um, I am talking oh, is that about spoiler. The no, no, I know, but it's um, you do at the f- you do at the start of the game, but uh, yeah, well, that's what I'm the... only, I've only done disc one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this episode, then, I thought with Final Fantasy VII Rebirth coming out in February next year, massively anticipated game, does uh, the whole Final Fantasy VII remake thing, but blows it up into the parts of the world map that you uh, you explore in the first half of the game. Therefore, expanding the scope significantly past just Midgar that you could explore in the first game. That's very exciting. It'd be a good time to get Matthew to catch up on the story so far in the game and reach the end of Disc 1 in Final Fantasy VII. So what does that mean if you never played the original PS1 release of Final Fantasy VII? It's basically the point where, spoiler alert, Aerith dies. It's essentially the end of the first act of the story, though it's maybe slightly more than that. It's quite a lot that happens in that first disc. So... You basically, uh, you sort of like spend the first few hours in in the city of Midgar, leave Midgar, go out into the map, and then you get some background detail on the villain in the game, Sephiroth, and you're essentially following in his trail um, mm. for the next few hours. So we're going to talk about that. But Matthew, I suppose before we get to your exact experience with the game this time, you've been playing on Nintendo Switch? Uh, no, I've been playing it on PS4. Oh, okay, interesting. So... 
why don't you tell us the story again about you renting a PS1 to play Final <laughs> Fantasy VII? Um, I think it'll be the third or fourth time that's come up on the podcast. But well, <laughs> nice context for your pre-existing relationship with this game before we kick People off. People who might only just be listening to the podcast now, and I know they exist because we often get messages going, I've just started listening to this and I'm going back through the back catalogue. So yeah. for their sake, we famously... <laughs> <laughs> he said... I grew up in a Nintendo household. We didn't have a PlayStation 1, but I coveted Final Fantasy VII because if you read multi-format magazines in the mid-90s, well, you were bound to cover Final Fantasy VII. Uh, This thing always looked amazing in Games Master. Uh, And so we rented a PS1 with Final Fantasy VII from a local video shop for one weekend. So I had one weekend to make as much of a dent on it as possible. But... We didn't have a memory card. They didn't rent it out with a memory card. So I had to play Final Fantasy VII until I died, and then I had to restart Final Fantasy VII. And uh, so I spent that weekend basically, like, grinding and learning to speedrun Nidga <laughs> and doing it over and over again and praying. Basically, the big sticking point was that big fucking house that appears in that um, junkyard section. Hell House. Hell House. Like, if that thing turned up, you were just dead meat. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was just designed for you to, like, learn that you're to run away from some enemies or something. This game's... To, to think that this game is designed with that kind of tutorialising in mind is kind of ridiculous because it, it just kind of leads you to your own devices a lot of the time. So, yeah, I basically... I'd play through the Midgar section until I got killed by Hell House uh, right. <laughs> several times over. I made it up to the top of the disc... Uh, where they're going to blow up the disc and drop a big part of the upper city onto the lower city. And I got killed by a guy up there. Uh, right. who was, he came out of a helicopter. I think what he did, if I remember correctly, is he had a, he had a spell or a move that put your characters in pyramids. Yeah, well, he like sort of froze them, I think. Like he, yeah, yeah. If all three of you ended up in pyramids, you were basically, you were just dead and it was game over. Because yeah. the only way to get yourself out of a pyramid is to attack the pyramid. So my three guys got pyramided, and then that was that. Um, I think we did actually, like, at the very tail end of the weekend, get out of Midgar. I think mm-hmm. we did a whole clean run, no how house, no fucking pyramids, climbed the Shinra building, fought whatever that thing is at the top. Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can already tell this is going to be a really thorough episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you fought that thing at the top and um, then rode a motorbike down a road in like... It becomes like road rash for like two minutes. Yeah, that's, that's basically right. Yeah, and then, you, and then you're out and that was it. And then we had to skip it back to the video shop. And for years, that was as far as I played. Uh, my brother Alex got it on PC mm-hmm. and... I remember watching him play it at my dad's house at weekends. I'd be playing, you know, well, I must have been the N64, but I remember him playing that, and I remember him having the walkthrough guide because it's so fucking difficult. He never knew what he was meant to be doing. Um, and I remember reading that rather than playing it on PC. So I had this sort of, like, as I was playing it now for the first time, uh, I kept having these, like, flashbacks to what must have been this walkthrough of, mm. like, Oh, right. Uh, yes, Sid. Rocket Town. There's a rocket and there's a man called Sid inside. I know this. I know this. Um, and there was another boss who turned up and I had a, a really clear memory of reading about that. It was like um, 
that it's like a big face that comes out of a wall. It's like an evil door in the Temple of the Ancients. Yeah. Maybe it's called Demon Door or something. Right. Um, the, yeah. And that was like, oh, yeah, I remember them saying that this was a huge difficulty spike. And it was. They were right. That, that walkthrough was bang on the money all those years ago. It was a difficulty spike, and I didn't have fun with that bit. Um, so, yes, that's a roundabout way of saying I've, I've kind of crisscrossed with it. And I have a, it has a weird... It's left a footprint on my life without having properly played it. And so to finally put that in context and understand what these disjointed memories were and what you and the Discord members have been talking about all these years, I was <laughs> like, oh, okay, I now know what that thing is. So it was exciting. <laughs> Very inspiring. Yeah, I think the only thing, the only missing detail there is, I believe there's a boss fight at the end of the Midgar section when you get to the end of that big um, big runway, right? Isn't there like a big Oh, is it like thing? a big evil bike or car? Something like that, yeah. It's sort of like, and then yeah, I think I, it, it, it's actually like a, in Final Fantasy VII Remake, you actually fight the car while you're on the bike, I believe. Um, oh, it's like a, right. Yeah, it's like I, a boss um, tied to that, yeah. Yeah, so I can't remember when I started playing Final Fantasy VII this year, but it was some time ago. And I basically I did Midgar about maybe six months ago when we first talked about doing this episode, and then I took a long break and I've basically been playing the rest of Disc One in the last like three or four weeks. So my <laughs> my memory of Midgar is now basically as patchy as it was before. So <laughs> thus, there's going to be a lot of like the thing on the road and the man <laughs> in the tower and the sexy bit. Um, oh, the sexy any- bit. Is that se- what- you go to like you go to you go to the sexy bee club where they all dress as bees and you like look through peepholes and you it's all a little bit Twin Peaks it's quite cursed. What you mean the Honey Bee Inn? Yeah, that's it. Is there peepholes in that? I thought you just dressed up as a as I just cloud up as a dress. You look through the doors or you listen at the doors and you, you or you look through keyholes I think and mm. you you can see like the legs of a man on a bed and he'll be like saying like yeah that's it give me give me some of that good stuff and then you'll see like someone cavorting around as a, as a bee i think you go into one of the rooms and it's like him and a load of dudes there's that punchline in this game is there quite a lot that you know you think it's a woman but it's actually a giant muscly dude which is powerfully mid-90s <laughs> it is but i would also argue that uh sort of like cloud sort of like dressed up in ff7 remake i would say like pretty like uh i'd say the approach is a little bit more tactful and yeah. uh you know dare i say it he looks quite nice so <laughs> there's that there's that element to it as well and i think it's less it is played for laughs but i think it's a bit more sensitive uh in its yeah. portrayal oh, oh um, yeah, oh, yeah. No, don't get me wrong this didn't offend me in the slightest i was just like oh oh 1997 Oh, I think it's a bit too silly to be offensive, honestly. Yeah, it's just, it's, like, just, it's, just it's just daft. I just, it, there's a lot of st- yeah. strange sort of streaks of humour in this game, which kind of come out of nowhere. It's a very odd thing. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like I think what's what's funny about Final Fantasy VII is it's a, a much more all-encompassing game than people remember. Like there are so many little bits in it that where something bonkers happens, or where the story just <laughs> like goes off on a massive tangent. Yeah. And, yeah, like um, I think there's a line I really like in the bit where you're being chased by the dudes, where he, um, he says, "I wouldn't shack up with a bunch of scrubs like you." He says to the bunch, to all those guys, <laughs> and I find that quite funny. And also the very zombie-like way they kind of move towards Cloud to basically, I guess, I guess the implication is assault him, which is not great, but you know that's <laughs> certainly uh, yeah, certainly reflection 1997, like you say. So 
Yeah, so um, it's, that's interesting to hear that you've forgotten a lot of the key details that you didn't know in the first place. That's quite funny. No, um, I, I, re- like, I remember some of it. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Uh, right. This episode won't be a total bust. <laughs> no, it's, um, by the way, that end of, um, end of the boss at the end of the uh, bike chase is called Motorball. It's like a big, silly sort of like robot thing with a big wheel. And uh, yeah, it's um, <laughs> quite Motorball. daft. So yeah yeah you can see why maybe they uh thought they needed an extra boss battle at the end of um the ff7 remake that wasn't motorball so <laughs> right. hence, uh, sephiroth <laughs> had to come in and do um do, do you a think bit all of the time that they're working on that game they're like well we're only doing midgar but that does mean this game is going to end with motorball and <laughs> how, when are we going to address the motorball problem in the room because that that is a thing yeah. And so that they decide to frame the game with all this mad bullshit so they can get a different uh, boss fight in there instead. Yeah, basically, I think that was probably the panic. They thought something else has <laughs> got to happen here. So, yeah, Motorball still gets his uh, due. It's actually an incredibly irritating fight in the remake, uh, Motorball. But, uh, yeah, it's actually... But it is interesting to hear you play it because I think, yeah, people do forget a lot of the sillier aspects of these games. And in the kind of, like, way that Remake presents the FF7 universe, I don't think they've, like... They've actually like I don't think they've I think they have embraced the silliness, but at the same time they can modulate it a little bit by you know let's say sticking Hellhouse in the Colosseum area, right? Like the kind of arena right. bit, so you don't have to fight like eight Hellhouses every time you walk past, like from one sector of Midgar to the other. So <laughs> they've sort of like thought about that on some level, I think, about how how best to address that sort of thing. So the, um, yeah, the, the the kind of irony of Hellhouse is that he turns up in an area where no one has a house as good as that. So, like, to not only be faced with a house that's kicking your ass and is demonic, so you're like, that's bad, but also to be, like, jealous that you... If you survive this encounter, you've basically got to go and live in a fucking bin. Yeah. Like, it would be much easier if you could exercise Hell House or tame it in some way so you could live inside <laughs> it. I'm assuming there is a house in there. Like, he's well, got no, rooms. So- Oh, he's got a little head and he's taxi, remember? So you'd open it and you oh, just see his, you so see his he's face. He's meat. He's like solid. He's like meat. Stop saying meat on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, he, there is a, a living being inside. So yeah, I mean, you could be like a commuter coming back from the Shinra building and you're like, oh, maybe I'll move into this abandoned <laughs> property. No, and there's like a, a living being inside there, like arms and legs and shit. That's, so, uh, that's Hellhouse's yeah. whole trick is that yeah. he, thinks, he thinks a drunk salary man might accidentally move into him on his way home from work <laughs> that's something i've got to ask you about actually did you say that you have the energy of one of those commuters who's scared of barrett on the train oh uh, yeah that... like <laughs> in that sequence there's several sequences where people go down the train and barrett's just like don't you look at us man all this kind of shit and you're like all right and there's all these guys who they either interact with him directly or they're sitting at the kind of front of the car and see him coming and then like piss their pants and they're like oh no i'm in for a really bad time yeah that's that's very much me i also spent a lot of this game thinking for all the big talk of we've got to save the planet and we've got to be one of these freedom fighters we all know that i'd be straight up shinra um if i lived <laughs> in this universe part of a nice safe company nice structure beautiful offices uh, climbing the shinra building is just it's like pleasure after pleasure that thing very envious i can like i would want to live in that world and i actually find a lot of the shinra people you meet like in in their kind of chaos uh quite endearing you know all these sort of idiots who work for them i think i'd fit in yeah which uh, department do you think you'd work for like heidegger or something or would you like work with hojo but be very wary of getting i don't really know what heidegger's deal is is he just like the military sort of guy is that not his whole thing Yeah, but hojo hojo's sort of making 
weapons. He's right. like the mad scientist, right? He's like, they yeah, keep he's... talking about he's making big weapons. Heidegger just seems to follow Rufus around, like just sort of generally brown nosing him. Yeah, I think that's because like there are a lot of like Shinra dudes, and Heidegger's in charge of them. I think like uh, that's like his whole deal. He's sort of but like then you've got all the Turks wing. who just seem to be having like a very bad time in lots of supernatural caves. <laughs> <laughs> you just keep pumping into them, and they're like, "We're lost in another fucking cave." And you're like, "Yeah, that's me." Like a guy joins a company, ends up in a cave somehow on a I don't know corporate I- retreat. No offence, I don't think the Turks would induct you into their organisation. I don't think they think you were cool enough. No offence, I don't think they'd think I was cool enough either. But I don't think you're getting in... in I don't think you'll be going around with, you know, Rude and Reno. That's, I don't see that as your vibe. Do you disagree? Uh, no, that's, that, is, that is fair. Well, I, in which case, I just don't really see where I, where I fit in in the Shinra organisation. I'd love to join them. But um, <laughs> I'm not Shinra. I'm definitely not Avalanche. Um... <laughs> I just think I just find they're just all so loud, and uh, I'm just not brave enough for that. Uh, I don't know who else you'd actually want to be in this world. You, you don't think you'd be one of the avalanche guys who gets like murked on the way to like try and <laughs> blow up a, a mako plant or something? You don't think you'd be one yeah. of those guys? Yeah, there's probably a bit of that. But you do meet, I guess, some people in like random towns who just own shops who seem to be doing okay. Yeah, um, I sort of think I want to. I want to place you in this world now. I want to give you a job. I think like I would sort of like fail to fit in at the gym at the um, at uh, Wall Market or whatever it's called. Um, I think I would struggle yeah. to get to make it in there. But you, you probably see me sat at like the noodle bar in there, or whatever it, the little sort of like restaurant bit is. I'd probably be sat in I, there. You know, I guess Nibelheim is kind of is sort of the bath of Final Fantasy Seven. <laughs> Not a big city centre, but it's quite built up. It's quite nice. It's got like a historical element to it. Well, uh, yeah, there's also there's Calm as well, which has sort of got a similar vibe to it. You know, which Calm's one's that? A, Calm's a little town outside of Midgar, where it's probably like you know, like sort of Bristol is sort of like would be Midgar, I guess. Then uh, Calm might be Bath. Calm might also be Chippenham or or something like or Keensham oh. or something. But uh, not Keensham. It's not quite got that vibe. But <laughs> yeah, I, there's more work to be done here to figure that out. To work but, out where is the Keensham of <laughs> Final Fantasy VII's continent? And uh, which uh, which version of Nibelheim would you have lived in? The one that Sephiroth burned down, <laughs> or the one that they replaced with uh, fake people who work for Shimra? Would you basically be oh, one of those fake people? That is me. Yeah, yeah. That's. Like, that's <laughs> That's like indebted to the man in a kind of sinister way, <laughs> which is like very much me. Um, but also enjoying kind of country, not countryside living, but like town living within commuting distance of a big city. Yeah, I think that's me. I wouldn't. There's no way I'm walking up that mountain that's nearby, though. Um, that's just that's just too much of a hike. Yeah, Mount Nibble. That'd be like a that'd be like a one a one time walk for you, and then never again. And you tell people you complain about the one time you walked up there because Catherine insisted you go up there for a day or something. Oh, with, Mount like... Nibble's got like your f- friends come to visit your friends who are like in better <laughs> shape than you, and are like, oh, let's go up Mount Nibble, and you're like, uh, <laughs> um, oh, you don't want to go up there. It's terrible. Yeah, and it is terrible. It's really confusing to navigate. <laughs> That's one of the few places where I actually felt like the pre-rendered backgrounds just completely lost me like i just couldn't right. read what i was looking at at all okay um it's just this like mass of snaking paths a lot of them go behind one another yeah yeah i had a bad time on that nibble 
Okay, okay. I think we're getting slightly ahead of ourselves. Yes, let's like, sorry. Let's yeah. rewind slightly. I was going to tell you a bit about my time with FF7, yes. just to kind of compliment your uh, <laughs> your sort of odd speedrunning Dark Souls esque uh, experience of playing this game, where you got pyramided uh, multiple times by a big lad. So um, yeah, basically, I played this game after ten which is my first Final Fantasy, and after 8 as well. Um, so I can't remember how much of this I talked about on that episode I we did about Final Fantasy this year to Mark 16 coming out. But basically, I played 7 afterwards. It was quite hard to reverse engineer it in my head because you have 8 where the characters look semi-realistic and 10, obviously, where the characters look, you know, realistic in the same way that um, 8 is. And then suddenly you're looking at these very stylized little sort of like Playmobil men in Final Fantasy 7. Like, and it's, it's quite hard to go back to it. And then you're like, oh... There's a vast difference between how they look in the battle screens and how they look on the on the you know like the when you're wandering around the map or whatever. And so there's a little bit of acclimatizing to be done then. Um, and it was actually like there was just there was just always so much sort of like baggage with Seven in terms of like people have very strong opinions on it. It was either you know a really important game to them during the PS1 era or You'd hear people be like, I played this and never got it. You know, the old, the old um, most um, traded in game ever thing that was sort of like going around. And yeah, and so I think it's it, 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 it sort of. Yeah, that was like a, a long sort of like peddled thing that was just not true about like it was the most traded in game of all time. There's never any stats to back that up, but people what? used to say I've it. Never because, heard that. Yeah, well, I, I don't know what. Maybe I've got this into my head, but like I'd read this like definitely in like magazines and on websites in the noughties about how. It was the most traded in game ever because people watched like the CD- CG sort of like trailers for it on TV, the adverts on TV, and then were like, "Oh, this game!" When they played it, they were like, "What is this game? I don't really understand this." Because you know, for a lot of people, it was their first touch point with the Japanese RPG genre, so mm. maybe some of that stuff seemed surprising. Um, but I got I got into it. I played the first disc. Uh, like, I would sort of like I say I played a lot of it in like early 2003 i like put it on hold that i came back at christmas um f- and like on christmas day watched Aerith die and then like went into the sections afterwards which involves some snowy mountains which i quite like and then i just um very gradually just like uh started uh, sort of like you know pushing through the rest of it over the next couple of years and i think i finished it just before ff7 advent children came out because that was a huge event of my uh, my teenage life, quite tragically, uh, obviously. Um, so did that, and then yeah, really loved it. But it's actually like it's like one of the most dense Final Fantasies in terms of stuff happening. Like a, a bit of a spoiler alert here, but there is a bit where Cloud goes into space, and like that's a thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So but that's what I mean. Like this, this is a game that's got like snowboarding in it, like motorcycle chases, and yeah, Cloud going into space, a man being hit by a lorry. There's all kinds of like weird oh, shit happens. I love. I, I'm looking forward to talking about the lorry stuff later. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Uh, like yeah, and then the the like the well, actually, I don't know if you know what the the thing the thing that happens for the listeners' benefit. Something comes out of the crater, and that's fucking rad. So. There's lots of like big, big moments in this, and I almost found it exhausting to digest at the time because there's just so much going on. It's a bit different to the pace of eight, which is that eight was very much paced with like a, a I guess like a four act structure. Each disc felt like it was deliberately like it would peak at the end of a disc with like some big dramatic battle or something like that, and um, it felt like that was part of the cadence of how you play the game. Seven just felt like it was ram it with more stuff, ram it with more stuff, and it's just so much going on in it. Um, and like the tone of it bends all over the place, like you say, like goes from really jokey to really serious. The characters mm. go from like really cool looking to incredibly goofy looking, and just like all over the place, really. Um, mm. But that's kind of what's 
wonderful about it as well is it like there is this big umbrella of what ff7 is and then squaresoft just rammed anything they could think of underneath it and it just it's this all-encompassing massive amazing game and i don't think there's another final fantasy that's exactly like it in that respect it really does feel very very com- it's complete the right way to be even like excessive maybe is the right word for it but in mm. a good way um so that's my history with the game matthew um mm. yeah so do you think it, does it make sense to you after what you've played that this is the ff game people seem to revere the most yeah i, I get it in terms of like the amount of mad stuff you see and it's all quite interesting and it's all quite memorable um despite me not remembering the exact specifics of a lot of it um you know i've i uh, you know i know the broad shape of a lot of these things uh this is amazing music it has this you know really like interesting collection of characters narratively it's really experimental you know, it really keeps you on your toes like there's there's very little downtime you know aside from if you choose to go and kind of grind out in the world map or something you kind of you, you get through a lot of stuff quite quickly yeah like the sheer variety of locations packed into it's is really impressive maybe not the the writing itself but the plots and the characters and yeah like i say the sort of set pieces and the kind of incidents that happen along the way you know would still be pretty impressive and good if they ha- they happen now you know at a time where you know interactive storytelling you know isn't hugely um sophisticated or or a certain standard has been set and is expected from like the 16-bit rpgs to come into this thing which seems so sort of fully formed and just so confident i get is is maybe the word i can understand why it like instantly embeds itself in people's heads and and it like there is a timelessness to it as well and that's that stuff does still land uh you know it's sort of surprising and shocking and funny in in a way that I I wasn't really expecting um given that I thought I kind of knew everything about this game and that it was pretty played out you know as a sort of pop culture artifact that it maintains you know the ability to for those things to really land is 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 really impressive yeah it's just it's just a really good hang I also began like it took me a little while but I began to kind of appreciate it as an actual like mechanical thing as well yeah. You know, for a long time, I held it. At, um, well, you know, because I mainly played Midgar, which is this sort of linear narrative rush um, from sort of start to finish. You know, you don't really get a sense of what the game's going to be. And it's not until you start, you know, adding more party members, developing materia, getting a range of materia that you begin to sort of see, like, how, how you're meant to craft and kind of grow these characters out and you know for the longest time i thought it was a like a jrpg that kind of lacked a you know job system or a class system no sort of skill trees to speak of i didn't really know what the game was uh and uh, that's that's been really nice to actually kind of get to grips with that i feel like people don't talk about that as much as well Mm. yeah it's pretty good on that level i think it's sort of like the materia basically they each have each of the abilities in the game have a self-contained progression system right and Mm you basically that but the other thing is that you can only equip a finite amount of them you don't just have unlimited spells like you do in the other games and go from there you have to slot them into your items and your weapons and equipment basically so you've got a finite number of slots so you can only progress um an an ability sort of like xp i guess or use it when it's actually equipped into one of those slots so Mm. uh, you can do that and then the other thing you can do is you can um you can actually like basically 
connect two together and amplify their ability. So let's say you've got the all spell and the cure spell. That will mean that means when you use you heal, you will heal everyone in your party at once. So mm. lots of nifty ways you can do that because obviously you can then use all um, with offensive spells as well. And then you'll get some things later on where you get like um, sort of like double and triple versions of um, of different abilities as well, which is ends up being really crucial to how you conquer the end game of this, which is basically a, a series of very very hard. Uh, sort of like giant monsters to go out and find and kill so mm. yeah i think it really is it really does work on that level so yeah it's nice for you to observe that i think materia is one of those systems that's held up quite well it's quite easy to understand but there's a lot you can do with it you know yeah yeah i, I yeah I, it, it did take me a little while to kind of get my head around it or rather like the only time this game ever really explains itself is in you know every once in a while you'll bump into a character who then offers you like t- you know ten tutorial dialogue options, <laughs> and like going through those is a, is is a quite hard work. Where yeah. it's kind of like tell me about this system. Like it doesn't ever show you. Like you know, Catherine's been watching me getting frustrated at bits of this game and like cursing certain old fashioned ideas. Like there is quite a lot about it which is which is really old. And you're like, well, nowadays you just wouldn't do this. Nowadays, you know, with a system this good. You would you would tutorialize it better, and you would introduce introduce that more gradually, so people maybe appreciated it more. Because I was really missing the point of it um, until uh, someone at work, Rob uh, Pearson, was on the podcast previously, um, was talking me through not like basics, but things that I just missed or I didn't understand why certain things were behaving the way they were. So like. You know, like that all thing, you know, when you connect an all materia to another spell so you can cast mm. it, you know, on everyone at once. But it would only do it once per fight and then never again. And I was like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, you level up, you know, every level, every time you level up the all, it gets another use in battle. And the same with the summons as well, I think. There was a lot of things like that where I, I didn't, re- there were things I couldn't quite unpick why they were behaving the way they were behaving. Mm. Um, and like that just wouldn't happen in a modern game, you know. Like that that stuff is just focus tested into oblivion. You know, it's all so smooth. And I think you know, I can I can I can imagine a version of this game which does smooth over a few of the rough edges. Um, like the fact yeah. that when you die, it bumps you all the way out to like before the title screen. That's the st- that's such a dick move. Why would you do that? <laughs> you know, it's like, why am I? Oh, I've got to go through all this. Okay, it's three button presses, but like, come on, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that does suck in the sense that if you just played this on, let's say, a naughty uh, emulation device, you could just load a save state and instantly go back to like, you know, right. wherever you wherever you placed <laughs> it. So, yeah, I do agree with you on that one. I think the um, I think it's interesting though because I you're probably right about seven not tutorializing things. You mentioned the Hellhouse thing where I didn't I didn't you didn't work out at the time that you were supposed to run away from this. It's meant to be kind of a tutorial, but not a tutorial on this thing. But right. I came into it having played eight and ten, so I knew that I had to flee that fight before his right. monster his monster stuff popped out and he or like does he do a thing where like a door opens and a load of gas comes out or some bullshit like I mean, that thing just fucking kills me so far. So yeah, just, you know. Yeah, you've got to get out of there, basically. Yeah. Um, you and the salarymen of uh, of uh, Shinra. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's um. So I came into it with knowledge of like the sphere grid and junctioning and all these dense Final Fantasy systems. That eight is quite good at explaining how junctioning works. I think even by then they'd worked out they needed to do a little bit more to explain things to you. Mm. And ten, the sphere grid is one of those things that is 
if you're not paying attention to the tutorial you're basically fucked in like ever understanding how that thing works and so that stuff that stuff had educated me to the point where none of nothing in seven really seemed that perplexing to me there were some abilities i just straight up never used because i didn't really understand them but generally speaking i got my head around it i think that probably speaks to the fact that you haven't played many of these games so yes yeah yeah. that's true yeah so that's that's one part of it but i think that is also like fair criticism um did you did you understand the concept of switching the limit break levels did it does the game explain that or did you have to have someone figure that out for you as well like the fact that if you wanted to cross slash you needed to like do stuff or whatever what do you mean? Uh, so, like, um, stuff. <laughs> so there are different levels of limit break, and you have to set the level, which gives you access to like the different limit break abilities. So I think there's like level one, and that's like your very basic sort of like um, I think braver. Maybe it's braver and cross slash yeah. are the first two that Cloud has, yeah. and then I think you start getting like more of them, but they unlock at like a. You then have to like equip the new limit break level to to use them. Um, did any right. of that sort of like come up or? Oh no, no! <laughs> I fill the limit break bar and then I use it instantly. Yeah, that that, ma- that makes sense. And then you is... can, you can, I've got, I've got. Some of them have a choice of like two moves, and I can pick between them in a drop-down menu. Yeah, that's but right. I, but um, I, I've not heard of like a level, an, an extra limit break level. Um, yeah. So this, this, so for Cloud, for example, he's got two limit break levels per. Like, so two two limit breaks per level. So you got your level one ones, which are like your braver right. and your um and cross slash. And then he's got like on level two, he's got blade beam and klim hazard. And then level three, he's got <laughs> meteor rain and finishing touch. Right. And then level four is omni slash, which you have to go and unlock. But basically, like I think you can't use all of them at once. You just have to like select a level and use the ones on that level, basically. So, oh no, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah, so um, that's the sort of thing I mean, you know. Oh, yeah. right, yeah. There's also, <laughs> on the interface, there's a bar which never seems to fill up, and I don't know what it means. Oh, I think uh, I know the bar you mean. Yeah, yeah. The one uh, next to their names. <laughs> yeah, I think that may be... That may be ex- that's like something like status effects. Like, it might have some kind of shield or something like that. Like, it might come up later in the game. I actually can't remember what that does, though, but I do always remember thinking, that's a weird part of the UI. Well, I didn't even nothing. notice it until, like nearing the end of disc one where i said to Catherine, oh is that a bit of the interface like i've never really <laughs> noticed that yeah it says something above it like oh yeah it says barrier yeah and, yeah and then there are two bars <laughs> nothing has ever <laughs> appeared in those bars i don't know what that is <laughs> yeah i think that's if you use like whatever the version of protect and shell are called in um in a oh. i think i think that's what they do that does but then oh, i don't remember it, the... well yeah i mean that's i mean there's god knows what other stuff is going over my head i don't know if there's a way of rearranging some of the drop down menus in battle like you have to scroll through nothing to get to something and i'm like is this right like some of the summons it's like the game imagines there's a there's a checklist of 20 summons and if you've got the top one equipped and the bottom one equipped you still have to scroll through all the empty space to get to the bottom one yeah, I, I think you can. I think you can rearrange your inventory, but I don't oh. think you can do that with summons. I, I might be wrong about that. But I don't think you can. The other thing was while we're talking the battle system, I, I cannot play. I had to put it onto the the mode where everything stops when you're making decisions. Oh yeah, everyone does that though. I think. Oh they do. Oh okay, good. Because yeah. I was like, how the fuck? I'm literally not fast enough to keep up with this. Um. Oh, I tell you the thing that really pissed me off. <laughs> When you select a phoenix down and one guy's dead, it should automatically go 
the dead guy, right? That's the guy you want to bring back to life. Rather yeah. than go, no, you have to press the D-pad buttons. And for some reason, sometimes it highlights the enemy you're fighting. And it's like, <laughs> this guy, you want to bring this life monster back to death? And you're like, no, no, I obviously want to bring fucking dead Tifa back to life. Like, <laughs> dead, I, dead Tifa. Like, it's not like Dead Island, use, Dead Tifa. Why would I want to use anything nice on a monster? That shouldn't be an option. Ah, you know? ah but, but you're wrong, Matthew, because there are, the zombie ability means that healing spells will injure them so you actually do have an incentive but to you use can it do sometimes. it for them <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't, don't do you. it for like i don't know <laughs> if it's a zombie i'm like oh okay automatically that's fine but like if it's like uh, like a frog that turn that also turns you into a frog so that's a thing. <laughs> um i never oh. want to heal that guy <laughs> no that's fair well i'll save more of your lowlights for the part two matthew because we've got lots yeah. to uh lots to discuss there can i ask you this though actually one thing that i think is still dazzling about the battles in ff7 is that camera i just think that the battles look fucking great like the staging of them and the way that the camera zooms in and out and stuff like that just if you think about the progression between snes ff games and that like that's like that 3d camera is doing so much heavy lifting to make the battles seem more exciting than they actually are i don't know if you you noted yeah. that either yeah I just yeah think like cool, constantly cool swooping around and i also i played quite a lot of this game on the ps4 version you can right. play it at triple speed. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely did that for when I was just like grinding out out in the world map and things. And that thing's just like demented at triple speed. <laughs> like the cameras are <laughs> going all over the place. It's, it's it's yeah. It's got it's got great energy to it. It has it has yeah. a real sense of style. Well, did you feel like Roger Moore going in the uh, being spun around basically when you're watching <laughs> that thing at three times speed? I would imagine. Not really. It's just it's just like a real kind of style like a like a filmmaker who's like an ultra stylist he's just having a way of the time it's a bit like michael bay is is filming every battle with just like yeah. zooms and sweeps and you're like oh my god it's like oliver stone directed those <laughs> battles yeah it's like how yeah I, I can see the sort of like the uh the connection between this and ambulance for example um, oh, tony just like... scott <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can see, I can see that. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, okay, interesting. So, last question, then, Matthew, before we get into some you recapping the story and some deeper thoughts in this game. Did FF Seven remake leave you with a hankering to know more? I know you were mostly watching Catherine yeah. play this, but I was curious to know how much it planted the seeds of. Well, what is this actually? Should I like get under the skin of what this is? So, I, you know, it's going to be a big part of games for the next ten years. This remake stuff, like, should I kind of like understand what the deal is? Like, to what extent do you, did remake like plant that seed for you? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, you know, watching Catherine play remake, you know, I've played the first couple of hours of it myself, but watching her play it, you know, I had played Midgar, and so I remembered a lot of it. And, you know, when you have a, like, a foundational text that's as iconic and memorable as this, it's where a remake makes a lot of sense, because there's so much stuff you just want to see in modern graphics. You just want to see, oh, I wonder what that thing will look like. I wonder how they'll do this moment. I wonder what this set piece will be like. You know, knowing that it's a bit more energetic than just the traditional turn-based battle. Like, I kind of want to see some of these fights in real time, you know. I, you know, the, the, the cinematics in Final Fantasy VII still have, like, their charm to them. But, like, seeing those those stories play out with, like, amazing CG you know has a huge amount of appeal and you know when i got to the end of disc one you know i'm so energized for rebirth now and and definitely playing remake as well so i can go into rebirth um if anything like because i you know i had no investment in in this remake project at all and i don't really know where people land on the 
the kind of modifications they have made to it that it is this it has this slightly, slightly like meta framing device going on and that it's kind of playing with your expectations it isn't a straight remake and like playing you know i didn't really care about any of that and i, I don't still really know how i feel about it without having played remake for myself but on the strength of what i played in disc one you do think i, I can sympathize with people who might think why you know why do you need to mess with this you know like just these sights and sounds are good enough it, it maybe doesn't need much much you know you'll probably over egg the pudding like just seeing these places renewed would be enough you know i don't need to see them removed and then enter into this weird dialogue with you know the legacy of final fantasy 7 through its own remake necessarily but I don't, yeah. I don't know. How, how did you feel about all that extra gubbins? <laughs> I think you've basically arrived at the conclusion everyone else did, but like, okay. it, but like <laughs> later. Um, so, <Right. laughs> yeah, with less, you know, you have less background with it, but you still understood, I think, what the overall sentiment was. I, like, I guess this is just from, you know, anecdotal sort of like evidence or discussion with people. But I think that most people felt like it was the, it was like the problems that plagued Kingdom Hearts creeping into Final Fantasy VII. So, Kingdom Hearts, the first game is very straightforward about like a boy who basically tries to find his friends and goes to a bunch of Disney worlds, gets involved with the plot of those uh, films as a kind of like Mary Sue type figure, and then like exits the story and then continues on his own larger meta story. And it's quite straightforward, like you just a light and dark battle, finish the game, you know, almost finds his friends, but they just like misses them at the last minute basically, and then has to kind of start again next time. And then it becomes this whole thing of like there are like each human in the world has a nobody who's kind of like this sort of like evil clone of them themselves there's this whole council of like tetsuya nomura ass guys with like spiky hair called like organization 13 who pop up everywhere there's a and then it's just like you've got like all this stuff where like goofy's going organization 13 and you're like we've got off the boil here somewhere and then it just gets like madder and madder from there and like basically they just start to bury the thing that was good and pure about kingdom hearts and the problem is i think it's created this thing now where that fandom likes that stuff and doesn't really care about the disney stuff or the final fantasy stuff in the same way because they are invested in its own lore and like i read like some news story i think i can't remember which website it was so they talked about how there's like some Kingdom Hearts themed hotel room that Nomura worked on and people are looking at it for like lore crafting theory or like theory crafting purposes. This is the game where it's like Sora turns up, he teams up with Tarzan and he fucks up the bloody like, I don't know, sort of Rudyard Kipling ass character guy with the gun, I can't remember his name. Like, just like, <laughs> just like, just... your Kipling ass guy. <laughs> I can't remember, I can't remember who the fuck I'm talking What's his name? Uh, oh. What's the British guy called? I don't know. Him, him, and then there's like probably a fight. There's like a fight with an invisible, uh, like, he's, bug he's, or he's something. He's like Tarzan's Gaston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's Basically. a Gaston reskin. Yeah, basically. So, uh, yeah, just sort of like, you know, big colonial energy to that boss, basically. And like, you, yeah, no, without the Phil Collins, the background, probably because it was too expensive, I'm guessing. Um, and it also just spares the audience a bit of Phil Collins, which is a, an act of kindness by Square Enix. So got pulled all over the place, all kind of like warped, basically. You're like, I think people just sense that ha- that or- that the author's hand at work with this as well. You know, like it was 
it was like, yeah, it couldn't just be a straight FF7 remake. Maybe that would have been too predictable. And I think it, at first it plants seeds of intrigue with like, oh, well, what's going on here, actually? Because not everything's happening exactly the same way. And then, like, when the penny drops and you're like, oh, here's fucking Sephiroth. You're like, it's just, it's a bit of a shrug. But it's still, the bits of, like, FF7 that Nomura will allow you to enjoy, it is, like, still the appeal of these games. Like, they, the mm. Rebirth trailers they've put out so far, obviously fantastic. And they're just rammed with stuff. They're like, here's here's us giving you all the things you want to see in this. And, like, to enjoy it, you just got to put up with a little bit of bullshit that reframes <laughs> this as the creators <laughs> wrestle with their own creation. Like, that's that's kind of like the journey, basically. Does that, does that help, Matthew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. Eat your vegetables. Okay, Matthew, let's take a quick break and we'll come back with some deeper thoughts and you recapping the story of this game. Oh, God. Yes, let's do it. Back to the podcast. Matthew, recap Final Fantasy VII for me. Go. Right. <laughs> Cloud. Yep. He turns up in Midgar and he works with, a t- uh, well, Shinra would call them a terrorist organisation called Avalanche, who are going around blowing up Mako reactors, which are power stations that sort of draw energy from the planet. Is Cloud a, like a gun for hire? Is that how he fell in with this lot? Yeah, he's like a mercenary, basically. Yeah, so he's turned up. He does that. You go around blowing up uh, the reactors with Avalanche, and uh, which is Barrett, who's a man. He's got a... Is his arm a gun, or has he got a special gun glove? His arm is a gun. He got his hand shot off and he replaced the gun. <laughs> okay. Uh, there's him. There's Tifa, who for, for the longest time I thought was Barrett's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't they know how... That's a failure on the part of the writers. They should be. They should be fucking those two. That's what I think. Well, I mean, she was kind of. Uh, I I had a, I had a, a vague idea that there is a, a sort of romance, or is, I, I, would you even call it a romance system in this game? Uh, there is. It's it's like an element of it. Yeah. You can go on a date. I I knew that there was a famous scene where you'd go on a date with a character and. I've been trying to sort of will that to be Tifa. <laughs> <laughs> we know your um, loyalties lie then, okay. By having her in my party and, like, I, I don't feel like there's a lot of branching moments where I've had a chance to, like, express much to her, you know, or, or, but I've, like, I've not done anything weird in front of her, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thanks for uh, that. Where, where I've been noticeably cold towards Aerith for most disc one, uh, which I'll get into. Um... <laughs> As cold as you can be in a game where you can't really express yourself, I guess, is the thing. Anyway, yeah, they, they all live in this bar, and you go there, and you blow up... Like, several reactors get blown up, and in the course of blowing up these reactors, you sort of... Cloud splits off and uh, meets Aerith, a, a girl selling flowers uh, in this sort of, like, busted church... Uh, who is of some interest to Shinra, the big evil organisation who make the reactors. I think that's right. There's yep. definitely the Turks turn up at the church for some reason. Yeah, that's right. They're like keeping an eye on her because she's got connections to... Well, actually, I'll let you talk about it. Sorry. Yeah, and there's quite a good bit where you run around some rafters like dropping 
bags on people. Yeah, that bit rolls. So. Yeah, and it plays like a good... T- this game has got one of the all-time great ticking clock theme tunes. Yeah. Of like, like, oh my God, you're in so much trouble, everything's going wrong, where it, it's, it's, you know, it's like, do, do, ha, do, do. And you're like, oh yeah. shit. And you hear, even hear this like, click, clock, tick, tock, tick, tock in the background. Great. Whenever that tune's playing, you're in a good scene in that game. I'm that sickos meme right now. That's me, like, listening to you (laughs) talk about that bit. (laughs) That song's awesome. Yeah, so she she works... You sort of become friends with her, and then um, loads of people get taken to a brothel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's kind of the shape of it. Um, Yeah, but but aren't you aiming to infiltrate something by going to the brothel isn't that the point like isn't it that isn't there a connection between don corneo the guy who owns the brothel and then shinra oh i thought it was just that she got kicked you're kind of walking back home past the hell house stretch of town <laughs> and then you the see hell district. You, yeah. you see um like tifa or you see sort of tifa or Ares. you see one of the, one of the women tifa, in, yeah. in like the in like this sort of like brothel caravan <laughs> that's one of the strangest moments of the game i think because aren't you like at some kiddies play park and it's yeah. like oh there, there's tifa in a nice dress going past or well, whatever that's that's yeah that that's a great like turn in a game because you're like what what am i suddenly and you're suddenly having to do this very elaborate set piece sort of out of nowhere that someone's just being kidnapped there is a bigger gain from doing that but i thought primarily you were trying to save tifa first and foremost mm. yeah that is yeah i think like i think she okay yeah i think i've remembered this so <laughs> tifa's going into don corneo's mansion in order to like g- get closer to shimra i think oh, is that's the point. right and you go you you and Aerith want to go in after her because you're worried about her basically that's like yeah. and i think that's what happens there yes but in order to infiltrate it you have to go through this um quite long sort of goofy side quest to disguise yourself as a lady and go into the to get into his his like brothel and so you have you sort of take part in all these sort of mini games and the better you do in each individual sort of game you get like a dress and some perfume i think you get some like sexy lingerie and you know the better a package you put together <laughs> we should use a better word then i mean you know that's that's tough i gotta say <laughs> well yeah you know what for don for that's what don Corneo would think the better right. offering you can make you get some kind of prize for that eventually yeah um it's a really characterful section of the of the game that's so good because you're in this like yeah kind of like cut like run down kind of market and there's always like quite strange businesses full of sort of charismatic drunks and slightly kind of freaky people and like weird commuters and given that you don't see like a vast amount of midgar and it's actually quite a like a quite a limited route that you're pushed down quite quickly um it, you come away with like a really great sense of the place and the people who live there and the sort of just you know the slightly kind of tired vibe but all these people who, who are who've kind of making you know a sort of swing of it um living in this slums in the sort of shadow of this giant plate and that that's really really evocative even with all like the sort of slightly seedy stuff it's very funny like the, the honeybee in is like has plays this really creepy tune and like i said it, it's the, like there's definitely a twin peaks fan on on the staff because when you look into the rooms they've all got that like slight red room you know look to them and 
you know, lots of like weird drapes and weird patterns on the floor, and it plays like a slightly kind of um, sort of sleuthy, kind of noirish, sort of jazzy tune and things like that. It's um, it feels it feels uh, like quite a clear homage to me, anyway. But yeah, you go through all that, you go into Don Corneo's uh, base, and I think that's where you find out that they're going to blow up the disc. Yeah. And they're going right. to drop. They're going to like drop this disc on one of the slums to basically try and kill Avalanche because you know they're a guerrilla army in in the area. So if you get rid of everyone and you fight your way to the top of the tower, past several save points that I couldn't use when I was twelve or whatever, <laughs> but now I use them an awful lot and it was a real pleasure. This game with save points, I recommend it. Um, <laughs> that should be in a review, I think. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Um, got to the top. Uh, survive the pyramids because I remembered that I remembered to, to, <laughs> remember to attack the pyramids but in the course of it a lot of your avalanche buddies get murdered and fall to their deaths and the the disc does drop and crushes uh, a huge section of the town the plate um, the plate the plate sorry but luckily your friends are okay so you come out and then you're like yeah well, um, not, not Big Swedge and Jesse they're fucked no it's, it's, it's bad for them um, do they do survive like little- in remake uh, I think like Wedge does. Like, there's a right. big. Um, do you like the bits of dialogue that are like, "Oh, I'm so sorry you're dead," or "Oh, I, I don't really know who you were actually." Fuck you. Kind of like a, a dialogue options you could give in response to each one. Did you like that? Oh, I don't really remember that. I think each one you can like. There's one of two things you can say to them. It's like, "Don't say this is the last, uh, the last time we'll meet," or something like that. But then there's another one that's like, "Ah, oh, I don't really care." Like this with each one, and they can, they're, the last thing that they will ever hear will be something like cold that Cloud says. I'm pretty well, sure that's in the game. I, I would have said whatever made Tifa fancy me. <laughs> <laughs> so remember, that's that was like the core of all my thinking uh, with with this game. So. I, I keep thinking about what you said about Mass Effect, how it's like, well, that's not my girlfriend, that's Commander Shepard's girlfriend. I like, but I like the idea that you're still very invested in, like, Well, this was Cloud's Cloud girlfriend. I'm trying to help Cloud have a nice girlfriend. Because yeah. Aerith is... She's quite a, like, strange presentation. Like, she seems so obviously childlike. She's very, just a very passive character. That's the thing. But she's I don't very, really like, get how old she... Like, she seems like, like a kid, and that's a bit like... Mm. Nah, they're all about the same age. They're all about like really, oh, I feel they're about like seventeen, eighteen kind of age. Ah, uh, they say. don't really set like. She doesn't think... come across that. She comes across as I mean, maybe like innocent, but quite sort of, sort of simple and naive. I think she's. Like, I think when she's like, oh, actually, well, actually, I don't want to give. I don't want to give things away about Crisis Core now because you don't know exactly what happens in this. So I'll leave that for now. You carry on, Matthew. Yes, um, and. I think it's then after this that you climb the Shinra building for for reasons. <laughs> um, one of the greatest video game stories ever told. This uh, um, you decide to climb the building. I know that you can walk up a load of stairs. I think I took a lift. Yeah, and I had a great time in this section because, like mm. I said before, you, you know you've spent all this time in the slums and it's all very industrial and brown and sad, and there's lots of like freaky dudes in. Sort of sewer pipes who say slightly cryptic things to you, which I, I didn't really understand. There's lots of it, it, this game hints at a lot of strange stuff, which I think is just for mood, um, you know. Unless there's shocking revelations to come, um, but in the Shinra building, it suddenly becomes like a lot simpler. It's very very glossy, you know. It's this it's it's this like meant to be this like like grotesque, the absolute peak of of kind of 
corporate indulgence, but it just looks like a really nice workplace to me. And it's full of all these kind of Shinra executives constantly wigging out because, you know, everyone there's sort of evil. It's a real kind of dog-eat-dog world. And it's probably my one of my favourite things about the whole of playing Disc 1 is, is the presence of Shinra and how, you know, they're this sort of quite a convincing enemy in that they're so big and so successful and all-encompassing like there's there's like no question they're a legitimate threat there are some really like nasty villains in the mix but there are also some quite jokey people there's always like weird office politics there's almost like a an entire soap opera playing out in the ranks of Shinra that you're constantly kind of hearing bits of as you go through the world you keep bumping into them and you sort of hear what the different factions are up to and they're all in complete disagreement over over like who should be in charge and what should be the direction of the company and it's that's really good they're they're just a really really good villain yeah Um, and they're deployed like they always turn up just when you're like missing them a little bit yeah i love i love shimra i'm just gonna jump in and say the reason that they go to the shimra building is because Aerith is kidnapped and they need again to, like, oh no that was tifa right that was tifa yeah yeah uh, so yeah no i agree with you i think that the the turks are really good because i think they like walk a fine line between they are a little bit intimidating like um uh Seng or whatever he's called he's a little bit intimidating and like i like reno and rude as a combination and like uh yeah i think they just turn up and they're like a bit of fun they're like you know mm. oh just gonna chuck in a sub boss for a bit of a laugh and at the same time yeah like you know the top tier are just like absolute bastards um, but they're <laughs> yeah. all quite di- they're all quite distinctive bastards as well yeah um, yeah they all have their like their own shit going on uh which i like and there's a ba- bit of backbiting going up like big backstabbing going on and you get the impression that like hojo is completely fucking off the reservation but like right. no one no one really has any power to stop him so he just does whatever he wants so yeah uh, yeah but i think yeah, i agree that... that's really richly done yeah yeah and like I've, I've only fought like them a couple of times like, i think i fought the, the turks a couple of times and when you get to the top of the tower the kind of president of shinra has been uh killed by sephiroth and uh his you meet his soon-to-be successor rufus and He's like quite a sort of flamboyant character. You sort of fight him on the on the roof of the building. He's got like a pet dog he attacks you with. Yeah. Um, and he's one wearing this like quite, quite cool white suit. I, I actually want one of the... I didn't really remember this from the original. Like in my head, it all had quite a universal art style throughout. But what I really like is that, you know, in the world map and the, the cutscenes, you know, the characters are presented as these like almost like chibi little figures you know, with quite chunky limbs. But in the battles, you get to see the kind of, you know, quote-unquote photorealistic version of them. Mm. Um, and that's always cool. It's like you're sort of zooming in just a little bit and you get to suddenly see, like, Rufus in his coat and, like, what his hair looks like and the kind of, you know, the heroes, you see them in more detail. And, you know, it's only in the fights that they look really cool. And then you're back to this this almost, like, sort of action figure way of playing out the story um that's that's always very charming but yeah i just that that whole shinra building section like the fact that each floor kind of has like a puzzle gimmick to it there's like a one where you kind of build this model of a city there's another one with a very elaborate like library puzzle where you're kind of collecting all these books. It was a bit of a pain in the ass and i may have had to use a walkthrough in the end uh for some of this stuff um but like I think it's definitely part of the game's appeal that it can 
be like here's a long story section here's like a dungeon with lots of intensive fighting here's a little bit of puzzling or here's an area which kind of combines all those things it it has uh you know eeks quite a lot of stuff out of every little scenario you know every little set piece does something you know of its own um and the shinra building is such a good advert for that because every floor like i say is just you know something going on um yeah, and you fight your way to the top. You fight a big gribbly monster, and you meet uh, that dog, um, Red Thirteen. <laughs> In my head, my memory was you fought that dog. I don't think so. No, no, you I don't. Think, no. no, I thought he came out of a tank and was like mad that you'd smashed up the lab. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, he's a, no, he's that, a chill dude. Yeah, but a monster does come out of a tank, and you fight that. Um, Genova is that Genova? Yeah. Maybe it's just another monster. Maybe it's another monster, actually, but then Genova you fight later on. But you see Genova in the the thing, don't you? You can go up to the little yeah, viewing it, window and see Genova. This, uh, another thing, so in a long list of like weird things that, that really jumped out, along right. with the ticking clock theme tune, is <laughs> this game does a very good line in something horrible is inside a tank that you can't really see. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of places <laughs> where people look through windows, and maybe you get to look through the window well, and you get to see like a bit of what's inside. There's a yeah. lot of horrors, contained horrors, <laughs> um, which like that's just good. That's just good sci-fi shit, you know. Yeah, nice observation that contained horrors. <laughs> oh, I love a good tank. There's a good because that's the you go up and you're like, what's in this tank? And they're like, it says like Genova on it, I think. Yeah, and it's all a bit like, oh my god. There's something. It looks like sort of meat and tendrils um, yeah also um shout out to that um that sort of like uh, corporate sort of like shinry music that plays that do 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 it's like the oh, fs7 yeah. music but like office kind of like lift version kind of thing but it, like, yeah it's, but got... it's got a good like you're in the office after hours uh, you know it's yeah. it's slightly kind of quiet slightly low-key but um yeah, I think but it's, it's also it's, building. It's a great like, oh, you're building to something quite big here. You know? Yeah, I think like that building really succeeds as like a wor- a space in a world that feels like your sort of it existed before you got there. You know what I mean? Like it feels yeah. like if it's got there's like good world building. I think in Midgar generally, it, it's like plausible mm. that place. And then that building is like, oh yeah, there's all these people here who work for this company and live there. They're like little their 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 lives like above this plate, and that's kind of like how it is. So yeah. Mm. But anyway, sorry to derail you there, Matthew. Please no, not on. at all. No. Um, but yes, you fight the big monsters. Uh, you then escape the building on your motorbike, and that takes you out of Midgar. And then you are in. Uh, now I don't really know how the how exactly the world works narratively if there are events you can miss by not going to them or if it subtly leads you everywhere like it it seems weirdly freeform in places no you can't miss anything because the thing you have to do after that is calm right you go to that village and then you hear about nibbleheim is that not what happens and then you can't Mm. actually like leave that continent because there's a big snake in the um there is a yeah so yeah it it does a lot of stuff where it gates off things with like vehicles yeah but i swear there are places where i'm like oh i i wouldn't necessarily have come here and have seen that you know like i i don't actually know what i you know that i'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here but there's like a place called gone gaga um very silly name for a place um side side note but 
you go there and you just see the Turks up to something, but you don't get any like items or equipment or vehicles. You don't fight a boss there. You just see the Turks doing some stuff, and it it did make me wonder if the game was, um, you know, allowed you to to miss those things, or if something else would have taken me later there, you know, taken me there later, and I would have seen it. But I, I um, think it sometimes just creates like like you'll get through a, one of the things gating a bunch of stuff, and then you can go and do a few things like at your own pace like the right uh the mount fort condor stuff for example like you know that sort of thing that i don't think you have to do or at least like well i went there and couldn't really do anything like it felt like i couldn't trigger it or it was right you have to come back later maybe right but, yeah. yeah but yeah in any case like yeah there's i think it there is you're, it is always leading you along but i think it does try and let you like at least yeah explore well, you know I, I guess like after you know midgar which like when I think back to it, it's actually now doing it. You know, I got through it quite quickly. But I remember I used to think that could be a whole game, you know, because, mm. you know, in my head it was like 20 hours. It obviously wasn't. It's like it's like maybe like four or five hours or something. It's yeah, it's it's quite a short little section. But when you come out of that and you're suddenly in this like, you know, open world, you know, it, it, that almost feels like, oh, well, here's the game now. This is what the game's actually going to be like. And, you know, that's that's sort of. You know, a little bit shocking in its own way um i think it, it it doesn't like it doesn't i wouldn't say like it loses the thread at this point but it becomes a a little a, a little bit more sort of vague and open in that you are on the the trail of sephiroth you know always kind of pursuing this man in a black coat and that's that's the sort of that's the sort of impetus to move between different locations. Like it always kind of comes back to that, and that's the sort of backbone of what you're going to be doing in Disc 1. But you go to these kind of interesting locations along the way. So that's right, you go to this town and you have a... Um, you go to Calm and you have a kind of flashback to a point in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's like uh, two years, something like that. Maybe, right. it's five, maybe it's a few more years than that, actually. I think it might be five. Maybe? Yeah, five. five is right, yeah. Where a load of uh, soldiers and Sephiroth came to this town to investigate something and it's being who's recalling this I must admit some of the flashback stuff confuses me in terms of like there's deliberately some stuff that's a bit screwy about it Um, and I I don't really know what it is Mm. like I don't really know where that storyline's going even after all these years but I know that there is something screwy with the flashbacks and all is all is not as it seems but Tifa's there as like a young guide Cloud is there working with Sephiroth but Tifa and, doesn't remember Cloud right well that's it she's like you weren't there and you didn't do that but he's there and he remembers it that way mm-hmm. so there's some kind of conflict there but the long and short of it is you kind of I think this is meant to be this isn't this meant to be the origins of Sephiroth sort of going a bit mad you kind of go up into the mountains to this laboratory where you find another tank with a with a with a vi- you know a window on it that you look through <laughs> and he he kind of goes berserk um that's how i remember it and then burns the town down yeah that's right he he finds out he was created doesn't he he finds out that's he was it. created and not that he and like he's his life is kind of a lie that's basically his revelation he's he's in that library in the mansion reading books like for days right and that's like and then he emer- and, and then he's like and then the town is burning and that's basically and then he turns around in that very famous shot uh and then like you know basically grinning as the town burns like it's 
a, just a, a classic villain origin story, really. You know. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this sets up like why you're going to be searching for bit for this person, and like that that becomes like the reason that you're moving between these towns. And what I like about it though is that like each place you rock up has its own little kind of sort of drama going on that you often have to solve to progress or to get through it or to get you know some MacGuffin which will unlock the, the next vehicle or the next kind of step of the way so um, may, even though I did this all recently maybe the order of this will be wildly off but um, you go to uh, you have to learn to catch a chocobo to ride across some sand which if you walked across it this big snake comes out and gets you but the chocobos can run across it, and that takes you to these um, mithril caves, which mm, are but, just... but before that, before that, Ooh. you see the snake impaled on the tree, don't you? Oh yeah, that's 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 a really dramatic sight <laughs> that <Yeah>. I forgot. <laughs> but that's like the whole thing because they create this breadcrumb trail because you find the president of Shimra with a sword stuck in his back, like the you know his uh, is it Masamune or whatever they call right. it? I don't know. His Sephiroth's big sword, and Sephiroth's meant to be dead. And the reason you're watching the flashback is that was the last time he was seen five years ago. So he's not meant to be alive, but he clearly, it would appear that he is. And so you are on the trail of Sephiroth. And the next thing you see in that trail is that snake, right? And it's yes. like, it's a pretty amazing sight. That I, is, I that, yeah, that, that is great. I and mean, that's the last, like, I mean, you, you meet Sephiroth then in person from that point on. But um, that kind of bloody footprint trail kind of dries up quite quickly um after that but yeah you, you you go you go through these mines and then you get to a place called junon which is like a giant sort of gun emplacement basically it's like a town built around a huge cannon oh, that's um, fucking rad i love that shit yeah yeah that that was really cool there's a not very good mini game where you have to <laughs> resuscitate a girl who's who's drowned oh, yeah that's tough, tough i didn't that understand game. that and <laughs> that was a uh, big games radar seo uh win <laughs> for how to how to resuscitate final fantasy 7 girl uh, <laughs> amazing actually, was it was it games radar it was someone it was one of those sites um and uh then you walk up and like i guess this is kind of what you were saying like this is like the everything game you know, you go to this town, you fight a mad boss, you then have to do a mini game to like breathe, give someone the kind of kiss of life. They come back to life. You then head upstairs at the town and find out that there's a huge kind of military gathering for the <laughs> now president of Shinra, Rufus. And you get a, a soldier costume, you disguise yourself, but in order to sort of sneak in, you have to take part of a giant parade in in rufus's honor you know which is like an uh then becomes a kind of like a rhythm marching game um <laughs> which the better you do like it's viewed from the perspective of a tv camera crew and they're like commentating on it yeah. and they're like oh look at this awful guy marching out of time <laughs> if you're not very good at it um and people point out you know what bad job you're doing and you and like the tele the whole television broadcast approval rating goes up or down <laughs> based on how good just you are at marching um which is like very endearing and like just you know clearly huge amount of work has gone into this one mini game which is maybe like 10 seconds long yeah and yeah. as far as i can tell you can't do it again like there isn't a, a there isn't it isn't like a mini game you can just endlessly rerun mm, it's I, just I part so, no. of its story you know yeah yeah that's really good you um 
that culminates with you kind of like eavesdropping on uh, Rufus and High Digger, who's like an, another kind of Shinra high up who who kind of follows Rufus around, kind of a real bootlicker, this big kind of round green man. Uh, <laughs> and you sneak into his ship and um, stow away as as you know, because you're. They're heading to where Sephiroth has been sighted, I think is the gist of it. Um, on board that ship, Sephiroth turns up himself. It's And you kind of fight this sort of monster. Now, I don't, I don't really understand the whole Sephiroth, like what he's up to, because every time he turns up, he kind of makes a monster happen. You don't... I would say you don't know exactly all the context yet for what is happening with Sephiroth. I would right. say it's probably useful to say. Okay, well that's good because I didn't understand it. But he turns up and he, he, like his role in Disc One is that you keep bumping into him and he leaves behind like a giant meat monster that right. you then fight, um, and they get like increasingly gribbly. And you know where he can where he where he kind of carries these things, how he carries these things about, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I could you know I could do without that. Um, after you fight uh, on this thing, you are in like a huge swerve from like fighting a horrible meat monster in a kind of you know seemingly doomed airship. You turn up in Costa del Sol, which is just like a really nice beach town. Um, not a lot going on in there in Disc One, as far as I could tell. There's never um, much going on there, but it's oh, just okay. like a, it's just a, I think it's just like <laughs> I think it's just a nice little. Let's give you a little pause from like intense moments. Like here's like. A nice place you can just go and hang out if you want to. I think that's kind of like the vibe of Costa del Sol, really. Right, okay. Well, that makes sense. Well, yeah, yeah. and it, it does look nice. Like, you suddenly have this completely different, like, colour palette. It's all, like, beautiful oceans, and, like, it looks like, you know, Portugal or Spain. I mean, it's called Costa del Sol, obviously, so... Um, yeah. You can buy a house there later on as well. Oh, really? It's yeah, I know you love house, that. is it? <laughs> Yeah, I've, just I've floats, learned, I've, I'm in. very suspicious of property in this world. It's like, that's weird. There's a house on this beach. That's very strange. Like in the water. Like what's the deal with that? Just open oh, the no, door. Oh, it's wet hell house. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh dear. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't. I don't think it has a, a plot purpose. Costa del Sol. Strictly, I don't think so. It's nice. Costa del Sol has like big Final Fantasy 15 energy. Yeah, that's. I would say that's probably fair. It's just yeah. like a nice hang, whatever. You can buy some stuff. You can talk to some characters. There's yeah. probably some amazing material there that I missed. Um, that seems mm. to be the gist of most walkthroughs I read. Where they're like, "Don't leave this place without having picked this up in disc one." And I'm like, "Oh well, so <laughs> much th- for that." I think, um, it also, I think it also exists to be like, "Oh, people who make good money from Shimra can go on holiday here," and that's kind of like the oh, okay. the kind of the weird contradiction. Of, it's like the a bit of commentary on the real world, I guess, where you know there's these like bustling metropolises that are like basically sh- strangling the planet, and then at the same time, you can be rich enough to like jet set off to this holiday while Maybe. the kind of world burns kind of thing i think there's a little Maybe bit Costa del soul is bath <laughs> it's like you escape from london yeah but we've got the we've got a river that sometimes sometimes smells of poo it's not quite the same <laughs> vibe as like being by the o- sunny ocean do you know what i mean it's yeah. very different uh there's some nice ducks though anyway carry on yes then you head to uh uh mount coral um yep which is the route to the Golden Saucer Arcade. On Mount Coral, you find out a little bit more about Barrett's backstory and about how he sort of started to become a freedom fighter. Actually, it's, it's one of the more um, effective bits of, of this whole continent is that you're constantly coming across these towns and villages that have been dicked over by Shinra in some way mm. or basically all bought into 
sort of Shinra, you know, a few years ago, and it's all been their undoing. Like it feels like they all got sort of sold into having a, a you know reactor nearby, and then the reactors inevitably like blew up, and everyone got you know all the men in the village got killed in the explosion, or like the the reactor has like so fucked up the land that you can't farm there, and everyone's dead. So. It, it really sells you on this sort of like, you know, ongoing ecological crisis, sort of like Shinra kind of fracking the shit out of everything. Um, and this, this, you get a big dose of that in this area where, where Barrett's whole backstory is about how he fell out with this guy called um, something, Dime. Yeah. Dine. Who I think Dime was like the original kind of freedom fighter and they all kind of ignored him, um, much to their mistake. Um, and uh yeah so that sort of sets up that sets up like this little arc which kind of plays out you know over the next like hour or so um another nice little trick it does which i guess isn't like wildly different for rpgs you know the idea of like finding out a side character's backstory but um, it's like a barrett loyalty mission kind of thing yeah but yeah, yeah yeah exactly and and that that's quite nicely done but like in the middle of that you you go to uh uh golden saucer which is like this mad like it's basically like mini game city you know you go there and there's like 20 different mini games you can play um for this uh special golden currency um it's quite annoying that you need to use the currency to save in the golden saucer um <laughs> like it's it's so kind of sort of up its own kind of capitalist ass that you know you just can't do anything here without spending money which means playing mini games that i was quite bad at um, I, I, I like the idea that you were like, I was all in on saving in Final Fantasy VII after my troubled childhood, but now yeah. I'm not so sure because <laughs> well, I had to pay for yeah, it. I couldn't save. I had to go and I had to play this very bad game about you like feed them. You feed a Moogle. Oh, it's fucking shit that one. Yeah, yeah. You have to keep feeding it till it like is able to fly or something. Space. It feels a bit like a Tamagotchi. Yeah, um, there's there's some easier ways to get the currency to farm the currency than that. I think like the bike chase one is one of the easier ways. If I remember, I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure it is. Oh, so I didn't play, I didn't play that one. Yeah, yeah, probably because you played the first time. You're like, ah, I've had enough of that, and you moved yeah, on. Sort this, of thing. Yeah, I guess this is like this is Final Fantasy VII's Yakuza section, where <laughs> it's just everything's very you know it's like the bright neon lights of this this sort of like pleasure palace. There's loads of games to play. There's loads of um, like what i imagine are amazing material and prizes if you don't mind grinding for like 20 hours to earn this kind of extra currency it's got like this is where the yakuza shogi heads are gonna really like be in their element like yeah this extreme patience the gold saucer is one of the ways in which uh danny lucas so uh used to work the future tried to get me to play final fantasy 14 because it has a gold saucer and it has like a load of mini games in it including like triple triad from final fantasy 8 for example and oh wow yeah so you can see why that'd be quite appealing in an mmo with a bunch of other people in it so um yeah yeah but uh interesting what, what but by all means uh, keep taking us through the gold saucer matthew <laughs> yeah you go to, yeah well you, you wander through the golden saucer um it's got a, a rad hotel which is like sort of a spooky haunted hotel i like that's um, the only accommodation there there's nowhere else you can stay yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like luigi's mansion but it's really gimmicky yeah. You know, like everything is like you know all the staff look like ghosts and shit. It's, um, <laughs> it looks very irritating. The kind of thing I guess kids would love if you took them there. Um, one of the things I, 
I found very charming about Golden Saucer is each area you go to links to all the other areas. So each area has to have like eight portals to the other areas and each area has a different way of showing those portals so like in the haunted hotel outside all the portal name all the area names are written on like gravestones and you have to go up to these gravestones and then like trap doors kind of swoop you to the next area where you know in other places they may look like you know star star trek teleporters or whatever it's just like there's like such an art lift in this section of the game yeah. like this is just like half the art budget just on on this <laughs> one area like it's a- it's absolutely ludicrous um and that place like that that this is definitely one of the locations where you think rebirth's going to have to like really deliver on this because yeah. it's going to have to look truly like just a- hd 4k mind blowing like hdr out the wazoo because it looks pretty good you know in this like 1990s version yeah as a 26 year old game it's like looking looking sharp i think in general the pre-rendered backgrounds look great still i think even without like an up res but uh i agree that the thing that gold saucer tries to capture is that feeling of going to like a disneyland park for the for the first time that like yeah. clubby around the head of holy shit look at all this stuff kind of thing um mm. and so yeah i think the the expectations set that super high like will it just be like you know six different rooms you go in in the all eight different rooms you go in in the in the rebirth version i feel like it needs to be like more elaborate than that so uh yeah yeah i agree i agree yeah, yeah, but then knowing like how you know what a good job they did blowing out the 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 kind of the the mark the city market whatever it's called from Midgar in yeah. remake, you I've know that quite, I've had it quite small personally, but that's just me, oh, well, but... Well, but more like as an event, you know that, that that they put that big battle arena and they made more of a story of it. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, uh, and like the mini games were well realized, like the dancing and the all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I can see I can see that working here. Um, what they don't tell you in the lovely tourist pamphlets for Golden Saucer is that it's built above a really gnarly prison. <laughs> uh, and uh, for the second time in this game, someone does the old drops you through a trapdoor into the nasty <laughs> thing underneath. Yeah. Um, suckers. Um, <laughs> like, I think they describe it as a naturally occurring prison. It's a prison surrounded by so much quicksand that no one can escape without drowning in the quicksand. So there's just all these sort of like muscly sort of hardened criminals just sitting around in this hot sun kind of sort of too tired and exhausted and dehydrated to sort of do anything and you sort of wander around this prison and this is where uh dine uh barrett's old pal lives and you have a little fight against him um and then in i I think like a like a kind of quietly touching moment he uh sort of throws himself off a cliff at the end of it um which yeah. must have been quite you know quite i don't want to say shocking but like quite something to have seen in 1997 as a sort of like it's quite an like it's quite an adult story to have happened yeah um, isn't there a bit in flashback as well where you see how barrett got his gun hand like basically because like he's holding on to dine at like the uh there's like a by a train track and then like a bullet passes through both their hands and that's why he's also got a gun hand and that's like that's part of the story they tell there right Ooh. or does that happen later oh, I, I don't know i'm pretty sure that happened that's pretty sure you get the full dying story because like oh, right. you see i'm pretty sure you see that scene because i think I, I was watching it i was watching like a 
little recap video before this. Did I rinse point. through that triple speed? <laughs> I assumed it was I thought that was just about two guys shaking hands by a railway track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I might be misremembering that, but like it's. Um, he definitely um, is responsible for why he's got a gun arm. But now that you say it, I couldn't tell you why he has a gun arm. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, pr- it was I'm this guy, sure and he yeah. just he just ch- chucks himself off a cliff. Um, yeah, yeah. After there's also quite a cool bit. Don't you see like a load of dead bodies, and you, and like don't people try and blame Barrett for it? They're like, oh, there's all these like dead guys, and like it's a little I mean, bit sort of like Colonel Kurt's gone off the deep end. You got to go out and find him, kind of. You, yeah, you, you go through the town where Barrett grew up and it's a big old mess and he's like, everyone here blames me, this is all my fault. And yeah, you then to get to dine, you have to do this sort of strange walk through the desert, which I didn't really understand if that was a puzzle or not. I just kept walking around the desert doing random fights until I eventually mm. found him like in a little kind of scrapyard in the middle of the desert. Yeah, it, do you know what that's like? It remind, The only other section I've played in a game like it is in the original God of War when you walk through that desert and you've got to find like something on the other side. Like That's a very strange idea, notion for a puzzle. It's like, wander randomly through this area until you might find something. Like That's really quite a weird bit of design, but yeah, I've not seen that, I've not seen that anywhere else. Yeah, very yeah, strange. It reminded me a bit of uh, like the Lost Woods or something in a Zelda game. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, a bit of that. It's yeah, just like yeah. every direction you walk in takes you to like a seemingly unconnected screen and you're like, where the fuck am I? Anyway, <laughs> it, for about a minute, it's a very convincing depiction of being lost in a desert. <laughs> yeah, for a minute. Well done. <laughs> yeah, very add, good. Add that to this game's many strengths. <laughs> um, this guy this guy goes, yeah, this guy goes off a cliff and for some reason you have to do a, a chocker. My notes are quite vague. For some reason you have to do a chocobo race. Right, yeah. Which which was fine. You know, it's just a classic. It's a bit like the Epona race, actually, in Ocarina of Time. It's like a big stamina management thing. But, I, yeah, I didn't really have a problem with it. And then you get to one of my favourite locations, uh, which is Cosmo Canyon, which is where you meet this, like, old scientist dude called Bo- Bugenhagen. Bugenhaven? Bugen. Yeah, Bugenhagen in in the house. I mean, you must have been pretty excited to meet Bugenhagen. This is it. I was like the Leonardo DiCaprio meme pointing at the TV. I was like, oh, Bugenhagen. I know this guy. And he kind of does the the Force Awakens Han Solo, it's all true speech, you know? He kind of of breaks down, like, this is is the kind of... um, this is the, like the spiritual energy at the at the heart of the world, and he does it with a very flashy planetarium, which you know is a good way. You know, in a game which doesn't tutorialize very well, like using a lot of like flashy graphics and light show to explain concepts to me is like big thumbs up. Yeah. Appreciated that Bugenhagen, <laughs> and sets up the idea that there's this you know this everything's connected, everything dies and kind of goes back to the planet, becomes this energy, um, and. Uh, yes, the live stream, and that you know this live stream is is Sephiroth is interested in this in some way, you know, as this awesome source of power, and so you're like, okay, this is you know, there's a bit more going on here. Um, this is also where Red Thirteen's loyalty mission kind of plays out. Yeah, um, yeah. I bit of a few question marks over <laughs> what this is because he calls Bugenhagen Granddad, and he's obviously Bugenhagen is like. Well, I say he's a man. He's like half man, half ball, and uh, <laughs> Red Thirteen is all dog. <laughs> um, uh, did Bugenhagen's child marry a dog person? <laughs> is is it just like 
It's adopted kind of relationship. It's adopted. I'm sure. Or it might just be like, hey, Gramps, you know, like. Yeah, I think you, you know so- that you have uncles who aren't really your uncles. Like, it's just <laughs> yeah, a friend yeah. of a family. Yeah, I think that's more of a like, yeah, that's more of a like adopted situation that he kind okay. of raised him because he's very wise isn't he red 13 so yeah yeah i mean so i like i only ever played disc one or every moment i could have barrett and tifa i only had barrett and tifa yeah so i didn't spend a lot of time and that's not like you learn anything about these characters by just being with them like there's no extra dialogue that i can tell of or anything like that and so a lot of these characters are uh, quite sort of vague and mysterious until you get to their loyalty missions and then you get a big dose of them so this kind of sets up this story of like his his father had run away and he's he's this whole life he's kind of understood his sort of dad to be a coward and in doing the little kind of dungeon in cosmo canyon um you realize that actually his his dad had done something very kind of heroic and sort it's of quite saved beautiful, everyone. Quite a beautiful moment, I think. It's quite, it's quite nice. The camera does this lovely pan up to this sort of stone wolf, and there's this like howl, and um, yeah, that is that is good. Um, still didn't convince me to put Red Thirteen in my party. <laughs> it wasn't gonna like help me with Tifa, so not interested. <laughs> um, unless she looked like, I don't know, if she's an animal person. But um, you then make your way to Nibelheim which is obviously the town you saw in the flashback. Now everyone rocks up, and that this is where the game begins to go, oh, there's something going on here, there's something a bit strange with like Cloud and Tifa, because there's no like memory or evidence of this like massacre and this burning down that happened all these years ago. Uh, everyone there seems... seems well, I say it seems relatively normal. There's always like, weirdos in cloaks everywhere, which is a bit strange. And you keep finding... like letters and books and things which are like got names like uh our secret document like how we're going to convince everyone this town is normal and things like that and mm. like step one of like evil scheme um <laughs> replace everyone with weird clone person and um so like that this is where like the game begins to get like a little bit sillier and maybe does have a bit of like just because the cloaks, you do think a little bit of like, oh, is this going kind of Kingdom Heartsy here? Um, like just the, the sort of the, the shape of the threat is familiar. Um, this is also a there's a very frustrating section set in. There's a mansion which I was told there was a man in the basement who could join my party. Yeah, Vincent. like a Vincent. Um, but to get to him, I had to solve a riddle which involved walking around this kind of, again, Luigi's mansion-ish kind of mansion. <laughs> but there's loads of random battles. And it, it just took ages walking around this place trying to find, like, clues and work out what was going on. Any any time when you're trying to work something out and you have to deal with random battles is always a bit of a bad hang in this game. Yeah. Um, I think you can come back for Vincent later. I think you can. Because well, he's an optional I hope so, party member. Because I, I got the safe combination. I opened the safe, and then there was a fucking horrible boss inside the safe. Right. Um, This, like. What, what did it even look like? Was it a monster? Like. It killed me really quickly two times, and then I was like, nah, I, no one's. Like, I, well, it wasn't going to be in my party anyway, so. No, the enemy. The enemy really got on my nerves. Is that there's a guy swinging on that like big sort of like pendulum thing, right? Yeah, and then yeah. He flops he, to the ground sometimes. I fucking hate that guy. There's this boss. I think the boss is like 
it's like it's like a half and half monster and you kill half of it and then the other half gets really strong right. and like the half you killed it, it 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 then defines what the other half's like so if you kill like the magic half it's then this like horrible physical thing and it can kill you with really big physical attacks right right anyway i was like screw it let's move on i have to get to the end of disc 1 because of the podcast <laughs> this is when I climbed Mount Nibble and had a really bad time because I couldn't find anything. I just found the path. It's the only bit where I got like genuinely lost, and there was like a big cave network, and I was just I could, it, there's a lot of like navigational puzzles in this game where you'll see like a chest or a bit of materia, and then it will make you go all around the houses to get there. Right. And the completionist bit of my brain is like, oh, I really need to do this, but all the time you're figuring it out you're also getting hammered with random encounters. So, again, that and the mansion together, slightly bad hang. Whoever was in charge of this section of the game made you do too much while doing random encounters. Can you not turn off random encounters in the Switch version to not have a feature that lets you do that? Well, I discovered this later. (laughs) Right, okay, fine, fair enough. Yes, yes, you can turn off the random encounters, um, and I wish I'd known, um, (laughs) because I would have done it. Um, But... That is followed by a section which absolutely rocks, uh, which is Rocket Town, um, mm. where you meet Sid. Uh, like just finding about about like Shinra's failed space program with these like <laughs> little flashbacks. That's quite cool. And then you have a really funny boss fight against this. I don't know if he's like the mayor or something. He's like a Shinra lackey. Turns up called Palmer. You basically smash his face in very easily for a couple of rounds and then he legs it from battle and gets run over by a truck <laughs> yes yeah, great stuff what a great gag you know yeah. um, <laughs> really good i've not really seen anything like that before uh, you mm. know like a turn-based battle end like that if that's not in rebirth that would be a huge mistake yeah it will be i promise you it will be there are gifts of that uh that that truck running him over so yeah oh good. it's just i don't know how i'd never heard of that like how that hadn't been ruined for me in all these years yeah how do you feel about sid as a character i uh he t- i talked to him and then i just had to, then i had to choose his name so i said sid i kept everyone with their original name so i wouldn't get confused about who was who <laughs> yeah, uh, when we're talking not about Andrew, this etc um yeah. I didn't actually realise he joined my party because, uh, <laughs> like, I don't know why I didn't look at the party select screen for a while, but, it, that, like, I didn't cotton on that that's what I was doing by naming him, was that he was joining me. Um, I don't, like, he's, I mean, he told me a sad story about a space rocket and how he, he's not know, how nice, he basically jeopardised his sort of astronaut career um, to save, like, a scientist in the base, and now he's at odds with Shinra. I couldn't really tell you much more about him. Yeah, he's not very nice to her either. I can't remember her name. The um, Cher- uh, Shara, Shara or something. Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Why was um, I didn't even know he was a playable character. Yeah, like people don't really talk about him much as a as a. Uh, like I know about like they're they you know I knew about there were these extra characters like Yuffie and Vincent, but I'd never really heard about, you know. Are there loads of Sid stands? I always thought Sid was just a supporting, like, uh, like an NPC mm. character. That's in interesting. All the games. I can see why you come into this thinking that because it's true that he's not often a member of your party. It's like he is a guy like Biggs or Wedge who you just meet. Right. That's what. Whatever. That's yeah. what I thought his deal was. So I, I, that's why I didn't even contemplate that he was there. I, he's he's quite shouty. I don't think he's like anyone's favorite character because he's quite shouty and obnoxious. He swears a lot. He does. He's got a bit of like old 
print media man energy is a bit tired by all of his mags closing. Do you know what I mean? Like he's got that sort of like Does vibe. Does that mean he's going to set up an awesome podcast? <laughs> the closer. Um, no, um, it's uh, he's got, but he's, he, I think he's worth sticking with because he's got some cool abilities. Like he later on, I think one of the, his limit breaks is he calls in like an airstrike from um, from like from the yeah from the from the skies, like a bunch of like. Uh, basically missiles come down it's pretty oh, cool wow. so i think he's got his moments but he's not like um there are some bits in the story he fe- features heavily into it fe- figures heavily into but i think one problem this game has in general actually is that you do have slightly too many cool party members that you don't necessarily end up giving everyone the time you want to give them because they're like jostling for for space whereas i think like in eight for example it becomes quite self-evident like the three or four characters you end up using over and over again or in 10 for example no one fucking likes kimari of course so right he he gets left out and then like i know like riku gets left out like i don't know here if it it's quite as clean but like you know if you've got barrett cloud and tifa you've already got a good party and then they kind of like keep adding more and more characters and yeah it becomes hard to tell like what's in it between barrett and red 13 and sid like there's not loads in it it would seem you know i think you almost spend too much formative time with tifa and barrett in midgar right that they feel like the OG party and like yeah. the correct party, and everyone else you meet, it's like, ah, uh, you weren't really there. Like that, you know, they, <laughs> you aren't in, you aren't in on any of the jokes. You weren't there. <laughs> you didn't, you didn't have to climb up all those stairs in the Shinra building. Like you didn't see Cloud in a dress. You know, <laughs> it's fine. You can come along, but don't expect to ever be involved. Uh, which is very much how my games played out. Right. Um, it's the Cloud, Tifa, and Barrett show, and then occasionally other people force their backstories down my throat so i begrudgingly <laughs> spend five minutes with them <laughs> that's funny well i suppose the other thing as well is that like the materia system means that you don't really have class specialties in well, your party so you're kind of building yeah. the class specialties with the materia therefore it is more about who do you like you know well yeah but that's that, that that's another reason i really like the materia system is anyone can be anything you know barrett is sort of my healer um i don't really know what tifa's role is oh she's know. just like rad like loads of damage her, her limit break is really good because it stacks uh different those real things like yeah she gets more and more of those so she's unleashing like massive combos basically right yeah, yeah. She's, she's cool and i've given her some good summons and stuff so barrett keeps us all healthy and cloud and her just like rain summons are down on everyone that's i've never really of... thought of barrett as like a healer like a white mage probably because he's got a gun on his arm but you know that's that's fine yeah it's like... just how it just like he happened to have the cure material first and i <laughs> just can't be bothered to unequip it <laughs> fair <laughs> i can't i will not argue with your methods um, so you, we're nearing the end of disc one here we right? are nearing the close. end of disc one yeah. uh you you go back to golden saucer there's a lot of um mcguffany nonsense about trying to get this key to a temple um Black materia, right? Isn't that a thing you're seeking well, out? Yeah, you're, there's a temple which Sephiroth is interested in. Because, I, I don't know if you know it's because it has black materia at this right. point, or if you find out when you get there, but that's that that definitely um, uh, is like the big part of the Temple of the Ancients. But just before you go to the Temple of the Ancients, uh, you spend a night at Golden Saucer where you have this... You end up going on a date. This is where you have a romance scene. You go on a date. You go. You're forced to stay there for some reason, and um, you're in your hotel room. And then someone comes to your room, and apparently, you know that it can be a number of different characters. This is who I was hoping would be Tifa. It wasn't. Um, Aerith came to the room, <laughs> um, despite Bummer. me not having spent 
a single second with her beyond what was compulsory. <laughs> I guess I hadn't expressed like icy thoughts towards her because I, like I said, there isn't like massive combination conversation trees or anything. Yeah. But that really bummed me out. That was a real begrudge begrudging day. We went and did this like weird little play. In you kind of go to this big arena and you get pulled into playing roles in like a stage play and then you go for a romantic Ferris wheel ride, which would have been so great. It could have been so great. Um, <laughs> but, because I, I guess the elephant in the room with Aerith, and like, this isn't her fault, but because I knew like what was going to happen to her, I just kind of treated her like, <laughs> like there's like no attachment at all. Like, I, she was never in my party. I didn't invest, you know, I didn't, I didn't make her the center of any of my thinking. Because I'm like, well, this character's going to die. So, you know, I don't want to give her anything good just in case she takes it with her. Um, yeah, and, j- yeah. you know, like, no no one would have thought that when they played this originally. But that is a weird bit of baggage you can bring to it. You're like, eh, you know. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is that, like, they're, they're pretty underwritten, like, both Tifa and Aerith, really. Like, you know, it's a sort of sign of the times a little bit. But I feel like... I think like Tifa's kind of background is tied up in Cloud's background. She's kind of like a feature of his his background, right. basically. And then she just happens to be there in the like modern day when he's doing this, you know, when he's on his adventure. Aerith is like she's tied to the larger lore of the story, but I don't know if they give her loads of like inner life. You know, it's a it's yeah. like you meet her adopted mum. Who, by the way, why does she have like the best property in Midgar? Oh, How that's is, like that's absurd. She's got like <laughs> like. That also presents a picture where the slums could all be like that, you know? Yeah, like Shinra would have bulldozed that, surely, and put, like, a Mako factory there or something. Like, it's, yeah, that yeah, is that weird. Hell, but, you, you wonder if, like, Hell House is just seen off the property looking on jealously at that house. Like, <laughs> hmm. But I think that's like kind of like, it's all just meant to indicate that Aerith is, like, one bright spark and bright spot of this horrible world, this horrible right. place. Like, hence her selling flowers. It's like, in the sun shines through the ceiling of the church it's like she is the the ray of light in this yeah you know this horrible world but I, I don't know if they give you like loads to and i think like well if you think about the fact they go on um they go on the sort of like they spent the most time they probably spend together is when they're trying to like find cloud's costume right to sneak in sneak into the brothel so mm. that's like at that point i think you are supposed to become attached to Aerith, both from like knowing that she is an important function of the story in terms of like the Turks are after her when you're in the church or you know when you go on that date and you're like oh there's like a you know there's a back and forth between her and Cloud like you're meant to maybe get invested at that point so if you weren't from there then it was never going to happen but then if you've got the death thing hanging over it then I don't know maybe she never had a chance with you Matthew I don't know yeah well, that's, there, that's there, there is that and it, yeah maybe that's the sort of cold and unfeeling of me but <laughs> I just couldn't I couldn't really detach her from what I know about her and the kind of legacy of that character, right. um, which just brought a, a slightly weird perspective to it. Um, I will say at this point in the game, uh, like it gets like a lot trippier and right. a lot more unexplained things begin happening. There's lots of sequences as you go to the Temple of the Ancients where you have like visions of the future and Aerith kind of like runs off at times and then you're kind of you can sort of see her and it's projected towards you it's all very kind of dreamlike there are some sequences where it's very explicitly a kind of vision where all the characters become like translucent and they're watching what's happened to other characters um 
And, uh, you know, not to, not to race to the end of disc one, but I will say that the last kind of couple of hours are so full of all this trippy bullshit. I, I was, like, when the when Ares Death finally came, I thought it would be a fair reading of that to go, oh, this is just more trippy bullshit. Right. Like, obviously I knew that she is dead because she famously dies in this game. But, like... I thought it was quite messy, that whole sequence and the run up to it, because there is all this like, oh, what the fuck's going on? And like Cloud starts like duplicating and he becomes like a weird puppet of Sephiroth and he sort of hands him some weird stuff. And it's, it's you know, I guess building on the kind of the weirdness, which is hinted at in some of like that Nibelheim kind of conflicting sort of flashback stuff going on with Tifa. I wouldn't say it went as far as to like it lost me. But I was like, oh, this is like surprisingly kind of weird and and um, sort yeah. of slippery, you know. I, given that the way people talk about this game in this kind of quite clear cut way, I, I that that just it, it surprised me. Is all. I, I think it's got like quite a big line in sort of like we're gonna like turn into some slightly mystical bullshit for a little while, and then it's like the and then it pulls you back into like oh, we're in this kind of like semi-real realistic like recognizable sort of setting so i think it flicks between those modes and probably that the temple where you get the temple that's got the black material in it yeah and also and then like the uh, where's this like the it's just like the temp the te- the cetra city or whatever it's called the ancient city of the ancients the forgotten like the, city of the ancients that's it forgotten city of the ancients like that's the one that's got like the big weird fish in that little house right that's quite like yeah. a famously strange little bit like the whole area's got like what's going on here sort of vibes it's like yeah. there's, no, there's no one there it's just very yeah very odd flavor to it you know but yeah i i, I did like the 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 temple of the ancients before it i, I didn't like the actual exploring the temple because it's like just a very confusing maze-like dungeon with quite a lot of um vague pathways and doorways that you can't see because they're behind scenery so you just have to kind of run everywhere and again endure all the random encounters but at the heart yeah. of at the heart of the temple of the ancients is this kind of um sort of trap puzzle mechanic thing which is this is where you get the this incredibly powerful black material that Sephiroth wants um but in order to kind of unlock it uh you, you basically have to solve this puzzle at the heart of the temple which will shrink the temple down into the black materia and so kind of crush you to death inside. Yeah. So the safety mechanism stopping people from getting the black materia is that you are definitely guaranteed to die in the unlocking process, which is like a really fucked up evil thing. <laughs> yeah. um, and I imagine like was very powerfully evil to people when they first encountered that. And, I, and it's quite evil to me now. It's like, it's almost like some weird like Hellraiser bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, their solution to this handily is to send in Kate Sith, who I didn't even mention. He turned up in, and this, this of all the characters who made like <laughs> no impact on me, he that sucks. fucking thing. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what it is. Like the twist is, it's a robot being controlled by someone at Shinra. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. A guy called Reeve, I believe. Uh, right. Yeah, and like you. Well, I've you not met him. him yet. I just know that he is being controlled. <laughs> he is. I think Reeve is in the building when you go to. You think he's in one of the meetings that you go to at oh, the. Um, right. in, in like yeah, you would have. He's like he's just. But he looks a bit. 
he's dressed like a little bit like a Turk. I think he's got like a suit on or something. It's not right. like uh, he's not massively distinctive. I think you do encounter him again though at some point. So yeah. right, but yeah. the, you know, it turns out you know he, he betrays you in the in the preceding hours, where it turns out he works for Shinra, and you know he's, he's this robot who's been programmed to steal something for Shinra, and but he comes to your rescue in the Temple of the Ancients. And agrees to solve this puzzle and crush himself to death, um, which is kind of meaningless because he's a robot being controlled by a man elsewhere. And it's meant to be this like, no, Kate Sith. But you're like, well, we can build another. And lo and behold, they do. Like about 20 minutes later, Kate Sith Mark <laughs> Two turns up. Um, I quite, I think it's quite a nicely done moment because it's like existential about is this dummy that has basically like joined you on your journey? Does it have any kind of like value or free will? As it like right. so, as its destruction sort of like is is sort of like okay. nearing. Like, but you know what though, it, it, if you don't pay attention to the character at all and you've never even used it in your party, you probably like get the fuck out of my party, you puppet. <laughs> then when another tone one turns up, <laughs> you you're like, puppet. oh man, yeah, yeah. Why is there another one? Like, yeah, it's sort of it's a bit odd. I agree, it's a moment, but it doesn't get the press that the Aerith death does. Let, no, let's face and, it, like, no, and it happens so close to it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, it's the justice for that. I and mean, hilariously, when you're playing on PS4 now, when you get to the air of death sequence, uh, it blocks the PlayStation filming feature. <laughs> so you, you can't why? film. You cannot film the cutscene of Aerith dying, but it doesn't do it for Kate Sith. <laughs> <laughs> Big shrug for that guy. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's the most Square Enix thing to like block that scene. That's ridiculous. Well, the, the funny thing about it is, is when that notification pops up, it's really big and loud. Right, and, right. and you're like, oh, well, I guess this is this then. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, okay. Yeah, not subtle. Um, but yeah, the idea of a temple that turns into a black materia... Uh, like shrinks down and then you have to climb down into the hole where the temple originally sat and you pick up this this black material that's going to have some plot relevance uh, later, I'm assuming. Um, Sephiroth turns up and kind of um, sort of puppet masters uh, Cloud into handing it over and you're a bit like, is Cloud like under his control? Are they mates? You know, is he... Well, who knows? I don't know. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess I'll find out on later discs. Um and yeah, this all takes you into the, the the final bit, which is the Forgotten City of the Ancients, which is a um, pleasingly combat-free section. Um, huge, weird temple with a, like you say, a room with like a giant fish that turns into a staircase. Don't really get that, but you know, ancients, you do you. That's fine. <laughs> um, whatever, like whatever floats your boat. And yeah, you go into a, a chamber, and uh, Sephiroth kills. Aerith in the scene which I can't describe to you because it was blocked um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, who am I to break break that block uh, and then you fight another of um, Sephiroth's sort of meaty left behind <laughs> uh, he does a lot of things where he flies off and leaves a big piece of gristle for you to fight yeah like Genova um, kind of like variant yeah things. this is yeah. another another one of those um, yeah. and yeah I fought that and I finished disc one yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, God, you know, that, was so, a, that, that took a, that took a long time. I that thought was, that question was going to be like five minutes. Me too. That was a one-hour recap of Final Fantasy VII. Oh, uh, that, I hope you enjoyed the podcast, boring? everyone. Backpage Pod on Twitter. I'll see you later. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, okay. Where do we go from here? Okay. So I think was the that, good thing was is, that interesting? was that all right? <laughs> no, I enjoyed it because it was like one giant man reacts to Final Fantasy VII Disc One. That's kind of like what has actually happened here. That's what's occurred. And I enjoyed that immensely. Um, yeah, okay, so 
I think we kind of got a good idea as well of like what you did and didn't like about the game from yeah. that. So I don't need to really go into your. I suppose like I would ask like what are your absolute highlights of that of that journey? Like what jumps out to you as like oh it's rad. This I can see why this landed. I can see what's cool about this. Like what are your absolute highlights of the game so yeah, far? Yeah, I mean, broadly just that variety and the, the number of different places I went to. I was constantly surprised that all these things kind of lived together in the same game and were all so well realized. Um the thing I really loved, which is like the real basic bitch, Final Fantasy VII take, was uh, I think the summons fucking rule. Um, yeah. Those animations are just hugely satisfying. Um, I'd only ever seen a couple of them from the early material, but you, you start getting quite a bit of material in, in the section that I played. Um, I really like Ramu on his little mountain, um, blasting down lighting, yeah. lightning. I really like Titan because he looks like a pro wrestler. He's got like big hulk hogan or kind of rick flair energy he's just this like muscly guy with like platinum blonde hair who like flips the entire earth that's good um there's one i'd never heard of before who was like is that the elephant or i thought it looked like a pig i couldn't quite place it kajata is it kajata yeah that's right it's more like a warthog actually yeah yeah but he like makes the floor all kind of ripple out and stuff and just uh you know it still looks good like when those things turn up that you know they they look like they're going to really fuck people up. I really liked um, Bahamut. That's cool. Um, oh, mate, wait till... There's like, that's one of three Bahamuts in the game as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I don't know if this is just having played Final Fantasy sixteen, where obviously these things are at the heart of it, but like, you know, it's left me with a bit more affinity for them. But seeing their versions, and like, they still look pretty good. And thinking back to like, what it must have been like to see these animations and models kind of appear in, in you know... Late nineties, yeah. Like coming from like SNES era RPGs must just like blown people's minds. Yeah, of, like that is as blockbuster as it comes. Those things. Yeah, it looks nice in like it. Look, it they do look cool when they turn up in like FF six or whatever. But like, yeah, it's a different a different world. And again, you've got that like the three D camera just sort of panning around them and just like really getting the most out of those animations. And mm. yeah, it's just cool, man. It's just cool. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, really very okay. good. Um. Yeah, but yeah, everything else, Shinra, uh, Cosmo Canyon, Bugenhagen, uh, Golden Saucer, I mean, you know, they, 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 were, they were all highlights. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I think that it, from the outside looking in, a lot of the most like basic touch points of Final Fantasy VII just seem like to be like Midgar and like Tifa and Aerith and, and then the whole Sephiroth thing. And like, I don't know, I think that maybe like, ff7 advent children's responsible for a little bit of that and ff7 remake is obviously just that part of the game so you only get a limited perspective of it mm. but there really is so much to this game like just and you know the, you have like loads more locations left to see loads of stuff left to happen like you're about to wander through some snowy mountains basically that's the that's what happens after um after disc one so that's that's i really like that section that's cool and then uh yeah like more more locations, more party members. Did you meet Yuffie at all when you were? Playing? Oh yeah, I, I, yeah, I got her eventually. She kept stealing. She kept sort of yeah, fucking off, and then Catherine found a walkthrough for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice, good. Yeah, How so anyone uh... played this game pre walkthroughs? I have no <laughs> idea because there's a lot of like quite cryptic stuff in it. I mean, this was like prime sort of you know rumor mill playground information network stuff of like. I could I could just picture people being like, "How do you get Yuffie? How did you get Yuffie? What are you meant to say to her? What are the answers to the questions that unlock her?" Mm. Um, 
yeah, quite quite fun. Yeah, it's funny because I think that when you get to even FF8 after this, like the the sort of tone of it is a bit more sort of like concentrated and serious. Like you don't, there is no like mini game where like squalls marching in a crowd or whatever. Like it's it doesn't necessarily have as many goofier sides. It's got a few goofy characters, but the tone is a lot more consistent. I would say so. Mm. Seven, it just feels like it's quite willing to just go off on a yeah wild little excursion for two hours and bump you back to the main story kind of thing so glad you like that uh so yeah like it's uh yeah quite cool oh quite cool to hear you go on that little journey matthew it was uh nice quite to hear you react journey. in real time i apologize for people <laughs> this episode must have been total dog shit they've logged off this, this one's got big destiny episode energy for those people matthew oh my god um, really how mortifying <laughs> <laughs> here's something i will ask you actually so this, I think the centerpiece of this stretch of the game, other than Aerith dying, is the Nibelheim flashback, going back five right. years ago, the origins of Sephiroth. Does that make sense to you as an iconic bit of Japanese RPG storytelling? Does that jump out as like a, a clear highlight to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, in, in that, it's, it's like your first proper dose of Sephiroth, and he's, you know, like Mr. JRPG as an, as an iconic figure. Yeah, maybe coming to it later, you know, it was like less surprising. I'd, I'd seen, I'd seen enough of it. Or I knew about that, so there were bigger surprises in store. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, like clearly Nibelheim and what is going on between Young Cloud, Young Tifa, and, and Young Sephiroth is is like at the heart of you know a big mystery at the heart of the game. So yeah, certainly very memorable. Um, oh yeah, I, I, I like the flashbacks in general. I think this game is. Um, like really quick to just you know take you to a different time and place to sort of fill in the story and show you th- how things happened it's it's a uh, you know regardless of what you think about the individual stories it's a great game of storytelling you know that it just tells you so much stuff and takes you to so many places so many little things happen little arcs everywhere it's um you know in light of you know the more recent final fantasies which have been like quite uneven and quite unsatisfying when it comes to the actual storytelling this this feels um like just absolutely rammed with incident which is very very satisfying yeah i think it i think it works well on that level and i would say as well that the i think like when you probably realize what happens in the nibelheim flashback you'll be like oh that makes sense with what i i think i know about this game like it'll click but i think it's really nicely done what they do i think it it, it clicks together really nicely as a as how the the mystery that they they're building there that's that's really good. So uh, that was a, that kind of like is a good transition point though. Like I was curious, do you think the writing is good in Final Fantasy VII? And I ask this because I think like where this actually came up in the Discord is that there's like a divide on. I think it's a snootiness towards Japanese RPGs from Western RPG fans who are like, look how fucking good the writing is in Baldur's Gate next to this poorly translated nonsense or like dialogue from barrett being like basically literally like mr t kind of like dialogue or whatever and it's just like but i'm kind of curious what you make of of the writing coming into it like relatively fresh like how how successful do you think it is i i think it's successful enough to like convey its characters you have a really good sense of it it feels like a world full of a lot of colorful people like even tiny npcs who you only meet in a shop or whatever a lot of them do or say something quite characterful um so it like really really registers i mean yes maybe like the technical writing on like a line-to-line basis like is you know a bit wooden or or you know a a bit old-fashioned but um 
I wouldn't say like, you know, it's funny you say Baldur's Gate there. Like, it's not like that's that that's also characterful. You know, I wouldn't say it's like individually that I like the the lines in it. I find it quite like naff and Saturday morning cartoonish. You know, it's just you know, it wasn't as much of a developed art back then, and I don't know it sort of fits the time. I, I like all of that aside, like the strength of it. You know, it isn't it isn't the dialogue. It is just the plotting. You know, like the set pieces and the adventure, like that Midgar section. You know, the the actual raids and like the the build up and then what happens in the reactors and then escaping the reactors and the aftermath and you get split up from a group and then that bumps into this character and all this stuff happens. Like it's it's got amazing momentum to it and it it never draws anything out. It just constantly every ten minutes you're in a new place, meeting something new, doing something new and. You know that's you know that's writing too. So I'd say it's 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 pretty sort of sophisticated and successful. I'd kill for a game with this much kind of character <laughs> uh, these days. You know, in a lot of ways. But um, mm. yeah, and 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 that stuff gets you through. Yeah. So what if they all? You know, I think it helps that they're not voiced. Maybe. Yeah. Um, like you can kind of imagine a slightly better version of them. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's. I think the game's good for like letting you fill in the gaps generally with your imagination, like right down to like how the characters look. You know, you can yeah, sort of... and their little anime, their little kind of wobbly. You know, when they sort of shake their fists or they do melodramatic poses or whatever, it's very endearing. It may not seem like totally coherent, but it kind of like makes sense as a sort of like you go to another continent and the Costa del Sol's there or whatever, and like you know, when you look at Midgar on the map, it is a giant object on that world map. Like it is like a the all-consuming center of that continent and i yeah i think it just it does a really good job of making that world feel like very exciting when you go there it doesn't feel like these locations just exist as pop-ups for you to like wander into as a grpg character they all have their own little thing kind of going on that's really good and then i think that yeah like i think the writing probably isn't the strongest in terms of how it's localized to look at and i know it's got a couple of mistakes in there but i really do think that snootiness from people who are like just will not accept that a good story can be told with this genre and I, it definitely can and i think this game is like evidence of that because i think the plot is really easy to understand and while some of the moving parts of it like the hallucinatory uh, nonsense you refer to matthew might kind of like obscure that slightly you're never really in any doubt of what's actually going on or what the stakes are i think it's good mm. at establishing that and uh yeah and i think that the characters this the side characters get they each get their moment i'm not sure like all of the characters all of the supporting characters do but certainly like sid gets his moment uh definitely you there's, there's some like extended yuffie stuff that happens later on there's definitely some good vincent stuff in the game for you to uncover as well when you're ready to go back into the mansion for that <laughs> bullshit um yeah like and and it's and then we've seen red 13 and Barrett. like i think it does a good job of like giving you the wider picture of those characters and by the end of the game you're like you do feel like you've gone on this epic journey. You feel like you're very invested in all the people who are along part of that journey with you. And I think that I can see why some characters have their own sort of like cult status within that because so much so much time is put into that. Like the Turks, you know, like if I ask a fan of fantasy about fan about the Turks, they'll have opinions on every single one of those characters. You know what I mean? And like right. <laughs> you only meet them, you probably meet them like what, about 10 times across the game. But they're all memorable and like they've all got their own little yeah little thing little personality going on and like i don't know it's just i think it's just it works really well as a bit of storytelling so mm. that's that's my take matthew but uh, you know it's nice to hear it from someone who 
is fresher to this, I would say. So uh, yeah, it really yeah. holds up. I like I I fully expected to come into this and find it all a bit quaint, but I I genuinely had a really really good time playing it. Ah, oh, nice. Glad to hear it. Yeah, it's uh yeah exciting. So I suppose that's uh the last question is, will you keep going, Matthew? Do you think you're going to persist with with the rest of FF Seven? Yeah, maybe I'll I'll do it after I've played Rebirth. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll do it like that. I'll do it in sections, and uh, assuming Rebirth ends where you know people think it'll end. Um, well, I'm being coy. We just talked about this game in really explicit detail. Yeah, um, because Square Enix uh, doesn't want you to share that Aerith died 26 years ago, Matthew. That is mad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, you know, I, I can't wait to see all these sites again in in those like mega Rebirth graphics. Um, that's going to be a treat. Um, and yeah, I'm going to continue it. You know, I won't leave it, you know, a year or something. I want to remember what I'm actually doing. And, you know, I've got a little bit of investment in my builds. And, um, you know, I still think Tifa can be won over. So, <laughs> okay, especially amazing. that Aeris gone. Oh, you, got, you should do some reading on how that dating thing works. Because, you know, you can end up dating Barrett, right? That's like a thing you can do. Right, yeah. Um, and I, I can't remember. I can't remember which one I ended up with uh, actually in, in sort of retrospect. But like it's uh, some of the ways they, that that plays out are quite funny. But like I think the reason you ended up with Aerith is because she has a high, really high starting score. So the game wants you to get with Aerith, but you have to fight harder to get Tifa, basically. So right. the invisible score ticker just uh, it fucked you over. I'm afraid, my friend. God uh, damn it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, actually, here was something I was kind of curious about. Did you actually like the gold saucer? I couldn't totally grasp whether you thought it was good, apart from like the art pass on it. Did you think it was like, did it's a good location, a good hang, the gold saucer? Ah, uh, yeah, reasonably. I'm, like I said, I'm I'm not a big, you know, uh, gr- grind away and complete everything 100. percent You know, it's 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 designed to be this huge time sink. Right. Um, playing these, uh, I'd say only okay mini games. I think uh, that's fair, yeah. But like, as a bit of visual design, I I really liked the the wackiness of it and how it kind of veered, you know, veered between all these different art styles. I didn't like the fact they charged you fucking three grand to go in every time. <laughs> that blows. It's like, do you want to pay three grand every time or do you want to pay like thirty grand for a lifetime pass? It's like, am I going to come here more than ten times? Like, I don't know what the story is going to demand of me. Well, there's like to get. Omni Slash, the best cloud um, ultimate in the game. You have to do that battle arena thing, basically like a bunch of... You have to like get to the highest level of that or something like that. So you have reason to come back. And there is a time where 30 grand will not be a, as big a deal as it seems like it is now right. where you are. You know? So yeah, yeah, you'll have a reason to come back. 30 grand, that's a whole lot of tents. <laughs> yeah, a lot of ethers, yeah, just down the drain. <laughs> Antidotes, yeah. Uh, okay, good. I think we kind of covered everything because you did like the entire story of the... The thing in massive I hope, detail. I hope that was a satisfying <laughs> way of tackling it. I think we stopped along the way to talk about individual beats. Yeah, I tried to jump in so, and like add a bit of a uh, bit of flavour, bit of context. I hope it wasn't just a, one giant man struggles to remember something he only finished a day ago. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a shame because. I almost wish I could like get you to do this with all the Final Fantasy games I like, and then hear your reactions to them live and weigh in. Like it's quite for me. It was a very fun exercise. I hope the listeners enjoyed it as well. But uh, yeah, well, it's good. Maybe. Well, it's good because I thought you would find this a lot harder to get through than you did actually. So I'm pleased to hear that you no, did have a good, good time. Yeah. If if this episode lands, I will happily um, 
happily uh, do more Final Fantasy episodes. Okay, cool. Well, uh, there's like an episode chat bit of our Discord, and you can tweet us and email us. Like, if you like this episode and would like to hear Matthew do disc two, let us know, and we will uh, we'll ponder it. If for you the hate future. it, don't let us know because I'm too thin skinned for that. <laughs> okay, so this episode is done. After this, Matthew, we are going on a hiatus until late December. On the free feed, there'll be a couple of treats uh, to look forward to. And uh, yeah, otherwise, the there's going to be a holiday special towards the end of the month and then also the Game of the Year episode, of course, coming at the very end of the month. So that's happening in December. But otherwise, I'm going to Japan, have a little pause. Matthew's going to do something, probably work his ass off and then uh, have a little break, I hope, and uh, yeah. have some eggnog or something. That'd be good. And yeah, so the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at BackpagePod and also Blue Sky at BackpagePod. Matthew, where can people find you? On Twitter, I'm MrBasil underscore Pesto. On Blue Sky, I'm MrBasil Pesto, no underscore. <laughs> Matthew, always on Blue Sky, you know, grinding his way up the Blue Sky I know, ladder. I, know, I always forget it exists, to be honest. I feel weird posting a tweet on there, you know, because it feels like, oh, you guys might enjoy this content, which I did somewhere else. It's like... The podcast is over. Goodbye. Bye-bye.